something out, but I'm like, that's an expensive experiment. Right. And they probably would. So yeah. this is a big piece of drama. People have been writing in about it, wondering why we hadn't talked about it. And it's because it really wasn't a news item when we were discussing things last week. I also don't pre-order games until they're in the preload state. You know, and then I'm like, all right, fine, I'll load it to my console now at this point. So this is something that I think is quite weird. I'm wondering what your feeling is on this. I think Hogue is getting some heat from people saying he's putting a little too much into it, but I disagree. This is a, as I said to him offline, I'll, I'll gladly say what I said to him privately to everyone. I was like, this is a, a couple million dollar move for them. Like, this is what, they, they know exactly what they're doing. And it's not much money, but they're making a little bit of cash by just saying, ah, fuck it. You're, you'll figure it out or you won't. And I find it's it's deceptive. This is the cross-generation problem we're in because unlike Returnal or Ratchet & Clank, this is a PS4 game. And that's why I think they should have just charged $60 for it, period. But what do you think? So this comes back to the fact that Jim Ryan fucked up uh, a few years ago. I'm looking at this where we have the games in – or not the game, uh, video game chronicle mm-hmm. article up that brings up – uh, his quote from an interview where he said the PS5 version of those games are built from the ground up to take advantage of the PS5 feature set. We have an upgrade path for PS4 users to get the PS5 version for free. Uh, it's about people having choice. I'm really quite pleased about the situation. <laughs> Let's just read that again. It's about people having choice. So Sony PR and Jim Ryan forgot that he said this straight up they forgot because you will remember when they announced the different versions of the game along the release date the special edition whatever there was no mention of this upgrade path at all and it wasn't until people put the fire to sony saying hey you said this that suddenly they're like, oh don't worry we're going to do the upgrade path like do you think that the internet is going to forget that you said that that's a good point. I don't know. Yeah, the, that's the, my question is that they did they legitimately forget that Jim Ryan in an interview said there would be a free upgrade path and then said, oh, fuck, we got to change things around. But the, here's the problem now is that if you make a mistake, own it and make it right by your customers. But instead, they're fucking around and doing this weird shit where they're trying to just coax people into getting – especially from a digital standpoint, the PS5 version, and just, just be like, oh, no, 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 it's 70. The upgrade path, well, you're on PS5. Just buy the PS5 version. It's like, no. Let, if, if it's, Jim, if it's about people having choice, if that's what it's about, then let people buy the PS4 version on the PS5 and then just upgrade it. Or you know what? Better yet, if you really, yeah, Jim Ryan, uh, Jim Ryan's like, oh, hey, let's yeah. play some video games. Um, if, if you really want to make this right, you know what you should have done is just make this game $60 instead of the split pricing, because, uh, clearly you changed your strategy somewhere along the way. That's fine. It's okay to change strategies. We don't like the the $10 extra, the, the split pricing. It's weird to me, but just make it right by the customer. And you're clearly not doing that. Yeah, it's. It's strange to me because, on one hand, I understand the increase in cost for games, new gen games. Like, sure, I'm yeah. one of the few people that will that will tell it straight, regardless of how popular it is. Game pricing is not sustainable. Seventy dollars games, 
basically just keep up with inflation over that time before the inflationary cycle that we're in right now doesn't make up for the fact that these games are just costing more because expectations are higher. You might not like hearing that, but it is nonetheless true. And so there is a part of it where I'm like, okay, PS5 game, new generation, new tools, new engine perhaps, whatever the case might be, new middleware, new knowledge. But I will tell you, regardless of what Sony says, and I don't know if they said it or not, Forbidden West started as a PS4-only game. I know that for a fact. And it was brought at some point to PS5, where it no doubt looks beautiful. I've been on such a blind... Like, I don't know anything about Forbidden West. It's actually amazing. Like, I've totally avoided everything about it. I see these little gifts sometimes of her, like, going underwater, mm. and I'm like, oh, I don't want to see that. You know? Yeah. So I'm totally ignorant on a lot of these things, but I feel like, for me... When you have the cross-gen stuff, you got to just bite the bullet from a marketing standpoint. I don't know why Sony is so confident that they can withstand PR blow after PR blow because they think it's like – they think that these are just glancing shots, but I think it's death by a thousand cuts, or at least you're risking that because people are asking, like, what is up with that? And they remember it. Just like they're asking, like, what's up with Martha is Dead, which we're going to talk about in a little while. Like, what's up with that? Why are you doing that? Right? Like, why are you censoring Devil May Cry 5? Or – why are you saying this, or why are you doing that? Or they have to, they have to have a more linear route to communicating with the audience. It's not sufficient, and this seems shady. And I think what's most interesting about what Hogue was saying was that this could potentially open them up to a class action suit. Now, I don't think it will. I don't think it should. But what I think that that Sony should do, if Sony gives a shit about its customer base, everyone that bought it on PS5 digitally should get ten dollars in their wallet. And that should happen automatically without having to fill out some bullshit. It should just there should be a post saying, Mia culpa, we're sorry. It was the wrong call. It's nothing to us to give you this money back. Nothing. Right? So I think and and the ten dollars in this day and this age is a lot of money, man. Mm-hmm. It's nothing to just wipe your ass with. So I'm disappointed in this. And so I now the one thing I'm concerned about. And I'll find out by the time this podcast goes live, it will already been answered. I can't preload the game. It preloads the PS4 version on mm-hmm. my PS5, but it will not let me have the PS5 version. And I am wondering when they are going to flip that switch. Are they going to be a little slow, right, and be like, mm, we're going to reach for it real slow today and get it 12 hours afterwards. Oh, there it goes. Or is it going to be like a day-and-date automatic thing where I can download the game? Because I feel like that would be the only advantage to having paid the extra $10 is to at least know that I was going to get going. But Michael reminded me. I was like, ah, you know what? Maybe I'll just do it. She's like, dude, you're not going to be awake at midnight playing this thing. So what the fuck do you care? And that was a good point. I'm staying firm. So right. anything else to add to this before we go on? No, just that a lot of times people, uh, particularly the last couple of weeks, we've been really hard on Xbox and Game Pass or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But this is one area where I'm like, yeah, Sony – Take a page from Microsoft's book here, you know. We and we we've, we've mentioned and many times on the show the, the the idea of smart delivery and how it's so much better uh, and makes it makes much more sense as a term than we had thought before the you know Series X and Series S came out. But now it's just like this nickel and diming bullshit. Just enough. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too in this sixty seventy dollar situation with this game, and it's just uh, I don't know. It leaves a bad taste in, in my mouth, and I'm sure it does for many, many other consumers out there. Definitely. Yeah, I hope people will remember. I mean, this is what we say all the time. you got to just remember and be con- – well, you don't, you don't, let me back up. You don't have to do anything. 
But if you care about this and you bitch about it, which a lot of you do, and that's fine, then you must withhold your money because they don't care. It's what I used to say about Electronic Arts when they used to win the consumerist worst company in the world thing every year. I'm like, they don't give a fuck. I mean, that, that's not a good look for them, but they outlasted the consumerist. I used to love that website. They outlasted the entire bracket that they used to do and all that. Like, EA is still there because when they won worst company in the world, people were still buying Madden. They were still buying FIFA. They were still playing Titanfall. They were still on Battlefield. It was like, okay, whatever, man. I mean, at the end of the day, we're the worst company in the world. That's fine. It's the same thing with Bank of America getting that. That's just like, yeah, whatever. Right. Take your money out of us, and then maybe we'll care. So I want to read this question from Ryan Goldner, though, Dustin, that I think will allow us to expand a little bit on – what seems to be their first-party strategy this year, maybe second-party strategy, rather, this generation, with uh, their pricing. And they say, hello, Colin, and his trusty party members. Only member today. If we're playing Final Fantasy, Chris is in a swoon right now. Mm. My question is in regards to a first-party game, or first-party game pricing. Is it me, or have first-party titles strictly on the PS5 remained at a higher price point for longer than the last generation? Demon Souls is at forty dollars as a launch. Uh, Demon Souls is at forty dollars as a launch title. Ratchet and Clank is just reaching fifty dollars, and Returnal and Ghost of Tsushima at fifty dollars as well. If I am just crazy, let me know. But games from last generation, after a year or even six plus months, can typically be found at twenty or thirty dollars. Is Sony trying to go the Nintendo approach and maintain their game's value, or could it be contributed to the lack of PS5s in the wild? Whereas they want to continue to sell as many individual games at a higher price point, given the lesser amount sold at launch. So this is a really good inquiry, and I think Dustin, we don't know for sure, but I think the answer is yes, they're doing that on purpose, and I think part of the reason is just because they can. There are not that many options right now for PlayStation 5 games still. I mean, not meaningful ones. So when you still go buy your PlayStation 5, if you just found one today for the first time and you're so excited, it's like you're still going to buy Demon Souls. You're still going to buy Miles Morales. You're still going to buy Ratchet and Clank and Returnal. There's nothing else to buy. So what do you think about this? Yeah, well, what's interesting, too, is that the Demon Souls being $40 is on sale right now, and that sale ends on, on March 3rd. And... Yeah, I think this definitely has to do with the fact that there's still so many people that are buying and bringing home a, a PS4, a PS5, their first one, whatever, and they're looking at Sony's first-party lineup, which we've always said is the bread and butter of these consoles. And so, yeah, they're willing to pay the premium because they absolutely want to play Miles Morales. They want to play Demon Souls. That's one of the selling points of these consoles right now is these exclusive games so it's one of those things where it's like yeah it sucks that they're still expensive and not uh been brought down in price i mean demon souls at 40 i mean actually actually pretty good on sale right now but at the same time it's like it's the nintendo thing they have they still have uh maintained the value because of the rollout of ps5 so of course they're gonna keep it at that high price as long as people are willing to pay it as soon as Copies of Demon Souls, Miles Morales, Ratchet and Clank start going down, then expect the price to go down as well. Yeah, well said. I, I also feel like I'm struggling with this notion that the, it's incumbent on the brands to maintain the value built into their games. Sony's value is only seen in the quality of games, and if they don't price them appropriately from their perspective, then why would you? Why wouldn't you wait? I think maybe in the PS4 era, people were trained a little too well from their perspective to wait because they would slice $10, $20, $30 off a game fairly quickly. If you're a, a, I'm not a normal person. Dustin's not a normal person. We work in this world, right? 
I play video games every day, and sometimes for hours at a time. And that's a very lucky and fortuitous situation. But many people, this is their hobby. They have other things going on. Before you know it, I'm sure days, weeks, and even months pass of you not playing a game because you don't have an opportunity to do so. Before you know it, you sit down in the fall and you look back and you're like, oh, Horizon's $30 now. Well, of course it is because that's the way Sony used to do it. But for some reason, no one gets mad at Nintendo for keeping the prices high. But I respect that because they've trained their audience to say, listen, this shit's not going down in price, so you might as well buy it now. And they do. By the millions and millions and millions, it works. The only thing that they have to keep in mind is the quality, which they pretty much always hit. So Sony can play the same game. The ecosystem will be treated as seriously, from a financial point of view, as they treat it themselves. And if you keep your shit cut and budget like they do, then people are going to notice. And that's why I think on the PSN front, on the other end, they should really be watching this bullshit that's going on. Not just from a trophy perspective and all of that, but just from a value perspective. People don't want to buy your 99 or 199 fucking games on, on PlayStation. Get them out of there. You know? So they got to keep an eye on all of this, I think, at the same time. It's an interesting inquiry. And I think as the generation moves on and we find these, like Wolverine, Spider-Man, these other next-gen-only games, we'll see how they treat them. I think it'll be different. Okay, thank you for writing in, Ryan. I wanted to tell you about our podcast, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, hosted by me, Drew Blood. We're a weekly storytelling podcast where you'll hear hand-picked horror from our favorite authors, accompanied by a full audio production and performed by yours truly. I invite you to search for Drew Blood's Dark Tales on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you do your listening. And subscribe for longer episodes each and every week. I thought this was interesting, just a quick note. The Last of Us on HBO, it's not coming out in 2022. This has been confirmed by Deadline, the movie, uh, TV, et cetera, entertainment website. And they talked to uh, Casey Boyce, who's HBO and HBO Max's chief content officer, and he says it's not going to air in 2022, in quotes. They are still shooting in Canada. I imagine you will see it in 23, end quote. What do you think of that? I thought maybe it would be ready to go... Because, you know, HBO usually does these four, six, eight, ten episode kind of things. I thought maybe they'd be ready to go this fall, but that's clearly not the case. In fact, they're still casting um, for some various roles and have open casting, I think, for extras and stuff, which is exciting if you're in those areas. I think they're recording or shooting in, like, Alberta, Saskatchewan, that kind of area. So what do you think about this? No HBO, The Last of Us, until 2023. Thus, I think maybe we don't see the game until 2023, or do we see the game in the fall of 2022 as a prelude to the Mm. show? I think it's their best bet to wait till the show is close for for the game. You want to, and using the word synergy again, but it makes sense that, you know, people want to play the game uh, around the same time that they're watching the show, or, you know, just to, in order to, while it's on people's minds. As far as the show coming out in 23, it's a little surprising just because I thought, Something in my mind told me that they were in the process of wrapping up filming, but uh, according to this article here, they're they're still filming in in Canada. So from that perspective, 
I could see that, uh, you know, we don't know how much longer they're they're going to be shooting for. And I wonder, this show, it hasn't been picked up for a season two already, has it? I don't think so. I haven't heard that, though. I've never understood that. For example, the that Halo show just got renewed for a, a season two, and season one is not. I always yet. think that that's, I always think that that's, my theory on that, by the way, just to cut in, is that yeah. that happens to secure either personnel before they're on to other things and they want to basically just seal them away so that they don't sign to do other things, assuming that they're not going to... Because that destroys mm-hmm. shows sometimes. Right. Also, uh, I think maybe it's money. Like, they're like, oh, we have you now for cheap before you even know what we have. Let's sign you again. And so it could be predatory in that way. That's my theory. I don't yeah. know. Go on. That makes sense. So, yeah, I I'm, I would estimate early 2023, maybe like a, a, a March era, a March time frame for that, but... I don't know. I'm feeling more and more optimistic about this show, and I don't really know why, because nothing's – I haven't really heard any info that would change my mind. I'm still not crazy about the idea of it being a direct retelling, but I just – I think that there's something to be said about the quality of, of HBO, uh, the direct involvement from Neil Druckmann. There's, there's a lot of positive – Aspects and maybe I'm thinking about this more from the viewpoint as we are. I think uh, Uncharted comes out tomorrow or today if you're listening to this on Friday. Uncharted movies out to uh, mixed reception. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little more later, but it, it feels different with this one now that I'm looking at all the different elements. So who knows though? Maybe it'll be terrible. I hope not. I hope it's good. I think that the combination of its association with HBO, which is very high quality. I don't think anyone yeah. would deny that. I don't like everything HBO does, but no one can deny it. I think maybe amongst the highest quality TV shows. So it fits well with the PlayStation brand, first party brand. So there's that, but I feel like they're very loose and willing to talk about it, which is indicative that they like it, right? They probably have the pilot. It's probably done. And I would assume that they're like, yeah, let's continue to kind of keep this in people's minds. We'll, we'll give quotes about it and little interviews. We'll put out little splashes and seed stories. Every time someone's cast, they see the story. It's not like a lot of other shows where you don't hear much until it's en route or people are already making fun of it. Like, they're, Unlike the Lord of the Rings stuff that's going on with Amazon and others, like no one seems to really be making fun of this, which is good. I think there's we don't have anything yet, though. I think the real purity test will come when – there's the trailer, and then we'll see how it feels. Definitely. But I'm confident as well. I don't really want it, by the way, but I'm confident. And I'll watch it. Sure. And by the way, people have been writing in and asking about Uncharted. We have to go see that in the coming weeks. We have such a full stack of Sacred Symbols Plus episodes right now that we, we'll do one for that, but it'll come in the next few weeks. All right, quick uh, note here on MLB The Show 22. As we know, MLB The Show 22 is due out on April 5th on PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5, in addition to Xbox One, Xbox X, Xbox, or Xbox Series X, Xbox Series S, and Nintendo Switch. Now, until February 23rd, beginning by the time you hear this podcast, until February 23rd, so in that window, some of you will hear this later, unfortunately, uh, but it will be available before you. Technical test is going on, free for everyone, on all those platforms. So if you want to try out MLB The Show on Switch, if you want to try it on Xbox, if you've never done it before, or on PS4 and PS5, you can download the technical test. It's available for all, no sign-up, no load limit or anything like that. It's all for matchmaking, cross-platform play, co-op, and all these other things. So if you're looking forward to maybe what will be the only baseball you get this year, because uh, there is currently a labor dispute in the MLB, 
that will, if it stays the way it is now, preclude there to be any baseball played. So go check that out. Also, I wanted to see what you thought of this. Gran Turismo 7 comes out soon, and uh, March 4th, actually. And it is two discs on PlayStation 4, one disc on PS5. What do you think of that? Yeah, so this comes down to the the type of disc that the PS5 uses is actually a new, it's the Ultra HD Blu-ray, which this uh, article you link kind of spells it all out. So I'm just, I'm not going from memory. I don't know this that well, but I, I did know it was a different disc, but the Ultra HD discs support up to 100 gigs on a single disc, where I think, I'm trying to see if it says here, uh, I think the old ones could be where either 25 or 50 gigs, depending on if it's a dual-layer disc or not. So, yeah, that's one of the little advantages of the the 4K disc player on the inside is that games are also on it. So, the uh, just one disc, which is nice. I recall, I, I, people have to remind me, but I think Gran Turismo 2 was on two discs um, on PS1. Sounds right. wrong about that. But there, I, what I wonder is if there's going to be a boot disc like Red Dead had, I think, and then play off, you know, I was reading this um, GT Planets forums and someone was asking that question, which I thought was interesting. So keep an eye out for that, March 4th, Grand Turismo. We'll have more, by the way, we did an episode of Sacred Symbols Plus all about that. We'll do another one after the game comes out. All right, uh, Hollywood Reporter is reporting that a Bioshock movie is in the works at Netflix. Take-Two has licensed this out, Vertigo Entertainment, and Take-Two will produce there is no one on board yet, so there's no one associated with it. This is just a project that was greenlit, which is exciting because I'm available to write it. Actually, what's most exciting is that Ken Levine should write it, but I doubt that they'll actually have him do that. Nonetheless, the game from 2007 is one of my favorite games of all time. Very well-respected game, as I think people know. And we should expect a remake, I think, according to the GeForce leak. This might maybe have something to do with it as well. What do you think of this? I'm skeptical because I feel like agency or lack thereof is the entire point of the game and if you remove that you have what would be an interesting dystopian period piece which would be fun to see but I don't think it's going to do the justice to it especially with just the kind of the very basic choices of saving or sacrificing the little sisters and all the rest so what do you think of this possibility of getting a Netflix Bioshock movie? I'm skeptical on whether or not it will ever actually happen it's a you know a sexy marketing point to be like, hey, we're working on a Bioshock movie, but we've been hearing about a potential Bioshock movie since Bioshock basically came out, and it's never, ever happened. It's never come to any fruition, and there's no one attached to this currently, so I kind of still feel a little skeptical about it, but I would hope, again, just like every other video game movie, that tell a story that isn't just retelling the game. And I think that Bioshock, man, it's so ripe for something that. Tell, do a movie about the fall of Rapture, about 1969, you know, in that New Year's Eve when it all went down, something like that. That would be awesome, which I know that there's, I think the the canon of it is, is questionable, but there is a Bioshock prequel book. Yeah, I have, I have. I never. I haven't read the entire thing though. Yeah. It's it's fun. It's a fun read. Again, I don't know if it's uh, considered canon or not. Um, if it's to me, it's almost like if Ken didn't write it, I almost don't consider it canon in in my book. But that's just for me. But 
I think that, again, this is a, a world that has a rich history behind it that was not told in the game. Use the medium of filmmaking to do that maybe better than a game could. I don't know. Maybe not. Because think about the fall of Rapture. This is when people were first starting to, to splice. So you don't have people going around fighting each other um, and shooting each other. So that wouldn't necessarily make sense for a fun game or a game yeah. that you could get a big budget behind. I think part of me disagrees with you and part of me agrees with you because mm. the part of me that disagrees with you says Bioshock's not about stories. It's about one story, right? It's about, like, this very specific parable about this man finding this libertarian dystopia that's under siege and all the fucked up things that happen to it. And the, through the DLC, especially with Bioshock Infinite, when you see Rapture before the fall, before the Civil War begins, you see it in this pristine shape, and it does suggest that it's right for storytelling. So it, there's two things, right, Like where it's like, yes, of course you're right. All these there, all the splicers, all the different characters you meet, even just through audio files, and the, the doctors and all the different people, the, the geniuses and scientists, like the whole pantheon of researchers that were at the head of society. There is a lot to tell there, but in my mind, the more interesting storytelling possibility is actually Bioshock Infinite, because if you want to expand, first of all, Bioshock Infinite happens first, but also. You, if you want to expand Bioshock's interaction with the world around it and make it feel like it's it's something that could really have new stories, then Bioshock Infinite is just much better because Bioshock Infinite is all about Columbia interacting with the world and it fights a war on its own, right? Like it on on behalf of America, it leaves America, it does all this crazy shit. It's all about the world, and so there's obviously lots of stories in there about racism and all of the rest, but. It just seems to me that Infinite would be the better place to go. And I hope that they find people that are smart enough to know that. Rapture is not inherently more interesting than Columbia. I love Rapture. I mean, I fucking love Bioshock, the first one, just so much. But I think that you want to start with Infinite. And then go from there. But we'll see what happens. I think you're right, right though. I mean, all these things were optioned, and nothing ever happens. And it's really just a pittance for these companies to say, like, oh, yeah, we'll give you... We'll give Take Two five million dollars for two years worth of time to just figure if we can get this off the ground. That's like nothing to them, and that's probably yeah. what happened. We'll keep an eye out. And I agree with you, by the way. It's not Bioshock. It's not Ken Levine. Yeah, that's how I feel. Stop with that. That's why I'm. Even though I've told a lot, you know, I've broken a lot of news about the the new Bioshock game, and and it's fun to talk about. I'm forever skeptical until it gets the seal of approval from Ken himself. Like. When the, um, I don't know if he knows about it or not, but like when the game comes out or is talked about, if it seems like he's keen on it, I think that'll be a good sign because I don't think he was very keen on Bioshock Two. Mm. Oh, I'm, I'm not, re I'm, I'm not reading. You know, it's hard to do it with just the two of us because I usually have time to read the things that we're having. I'm skipping a lot of people's questions today. I'm sorry, David Jacobs. I was going to use your question, but we didn't end up using it. However, I'll use Ruben Barrett. He says, "Dear Secret Symbols crew." The second, so uh, the second Sonic the Hedgehog movie is due for release this year, and there is now news that a third film has already been signed off and is beginning production. Furthermore, a standalone Knuckles movie has been given the green light, leading into what some have dubbed the Sonic Cinematic Universe. It's too bad, that it's, too bad it's not the Sonic Universe Cinematic, because it would just be suck. <laughs> At what point have we strayed too far from God and are in need of an apocalyptic reckoning that shall destroy our already tainted souls? So, this is true. Um, Deadline also reports about uh, Sonic expansion, third film, and Knuckles spinoff, so a fourth film with 
Idris Elba reprising his role. What do you think of this? I mean, I, I, I don't want to judge it too harshly because I don't like Sonic. I don't care mm-hmm. about Sonic. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't – it's not germane. Obviously, the, the Sonic movie was very well received and did extraordinarily well. And by the way, how smart were they to say, like, we're going to fix Sonic? Like, I think Sega deserves a lot of credit for that. Because I don't always like people bitching and whining, but we all agree that that was an eldritch creature at very best, that right. original Sonic. So they have this new movie. And similar, I think that there's so much heft and production, especially after production, post-production stuff going on with these movies, that you kind of have to just get them going. And I don't begrudge Sega that, because I don't feel like it feels that egregious. I think if they go much further than this without re- releasing movies and showing that they can do something with it, then that's cool. But they're... They're kind of on a high. They're, there's like a Sega renaissance going on right now. There's there's a lot of positivity coming out of that brand, and so I don't necessarily mind seeing it celebrated because it's so funny that Sonic is finally culturally relevant. It took 30 fucking years to make Sonic truly relevant, and now he really is. It's not just relevant in games. It's not just relevant in some corners of fandom. It's like this is a movie that made hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a crossover hit. So do you have anything to say about this, positive or negative? I was in Target the other day, and I heard a little girl walking by with her dad, and she was saying something like, I want to watch Sonic. I was like, what? And I thought, I was like, well, yeah, obviously that's a perfectly normal thing to overhear. But it just was so funny to me growing up. I was in sixth grade when uh, Sonic 06 came out, and, like, Sonic, Sonic was lame and was lame for a very long time. And now it's just uh, kids love Sonic. Like you said, he's he's on top of the world. And so I totally understand them wanting to just dump money into this Sonic film IP. And so, yeah, it, it's one of those things where it doesn't appeal to you or I, Colin, but a lot of people enjoyed it. And so, yeah, give give the people more. It's just the, the question of when does it become uh, – oversaturated and annoying, which is really just what they'll do until, you know, the the money goes dry. But this is just, I mean, the nostalgia plays are, are very big right now. It's not going away. You know, we got a, a new live-action Chippendale Rescue Rangers announced. Yeah, that's they, unnecessary. They announced uh, a Blue's Clues movie that has all three hosts. It's like, you Dude. know, Spider-Man, which, not going to lie. That was pretty... That was pretty crazy. I only knew I, – I mean, I was too old for Blue's Clues always, but I remember mm-hmm. the first guy, you know, Steve. Steve. Yeah. I'm a big Steve fan. I grew up with Steve, and so when I saw that he was going to be in this film, I said, damn it, you got me. You got me. I might have to check out this Blue's Clues <laughs> movie, <laughs> which yeah, I, mean, I, might, I might have to. They got you. And that's the now, thing. The nostalgia is yeah. big, but sometimes they get you. Sometimes they get you, and you just got to go with it. Definitely. I agree. And I, I don't think you're wrong at all. Like, just get your money while it's going good. And Sega yes. seems to be a pretty good shepherd right now of product. Like, Yakuza's doing really well. Atlas is owned by Sega, and they're booming right now. I mean, it's like, okay, Sega, I see you. I understand. You have this perfect combination of nostalgia, quality, and this kind of feeling of confidence. Like, it's your time to shine. So you know what? Go do it. But you know what? Bring back Fantasy Star, for God's sake. Yeah. What is going on with that? Fantasy Star 4 came out in 1995. 
can we get Fantasy Star 5? I don't want Fantasy Star online. I'm glad people like that. Fantasy Star is so good, dude. Stop fucking around. I don't like that shit. All right. I wanted to touch on this again. Last week we talked about how Sims 4 is getting this gay marriage DLC. <laughs> it's not really called that, but it's called My Wedding Stories. Yeah. And there's one thing in there where there's like a lesbian relationship. And we were talking about how in Russia this was not going to be released because it doesn't conf- comport with Russian law specifically regarding children's access, I guess, to what would be homosexual fiction, uh, for lack of a better term. And uh, so they said this, though. Uh, last week we shared the below update, and it's still there on the same page, about our upcoming game pack, My Wedding Stories. At the time, we believed that our team could not freely share the storytelling of same-sex couple Cam and Dom in Russia and decided the best way to uphold our commitment to sharing their story was not to release this pack there. Since then, we've been listening to the outpouring of feelings from our community, including both support for our decision and concern for their fellow community members. It's equally important for us to stand by our values, including standing against homophobia, and to share stories like this with those who want and need it most. With this in mind, we've reassessed our options and realized we can do more than we initially believed, and we now will release the Sims 4 My Wedding Stories game pack to our community in Russia, unaltered and unchanged, featuring Dom and Cam. So that comes on February 23rd. Just wanted to acknowledge that that was updated. It's interesting to me, Dustin, that the lawyers there didn't understand the law well enough to know that they just made a problem for them them uh, unnecessarily. That's the the cynic in me says that they did this on purpose. That's exactly what I was going to say, Colin. Is that there's a little part of me that's like, oh, is this a nice little PR move? But I don't know. I, I think we should... We should give them the benefit of the doubt, but I don't know, does, does EA and The Sims deserve that? <laughs> no, no, they don't. They definitely don't. So, uh, But nonetheless, they're doing the right thing. It's important to stand right. by. I mean, this is what I keep saying. It's important to stand by your your content. And in a way, they were. I mean, I can't blame EA too much. They said, we're just not going to release it. They didn't say we're editing it or taking it out. We're just not releasing it. I think that that was the only other option. But who knows? I never trust corporations and what their intent are, or what their intent is. Certainly not what their intent are. By the way, Video Games Chronicle has a piece of news here. I was just wanted to throw this out there. Visual Concepts, which is the 2K-owned studio best known for NBA 2K, they're now doing WWE as well in place of Ukes, the Japanese studio that long did that. They're working on another game. And Video Games Chronicle noted that a listing for a producer role, non-creative role, says, quote, our Foothill Ranch studio is looking for a seasoned producer to join our development efforts on an unannounced open-world driving game with a major license. This AAA title is targeted at multiple platforms. So this is basically the NBA and WWE studio, mostly NBA, doing something else, an open-world driving game. What could it be? Hmm. The major license part is what's interesting to me. Do you? Fast and uh... Furious is the only thing I can think of that would be a major license that would make sense like that, right? Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm trying to – because Hot Wheels already has uh, a game going – or uh, some kind of deals with other studios. We had that Hot Wheels game. Yeah, that year. game was big. That Hot Wheels game sold like a million copies, I think. Uh, supposedly it wasn't bad either. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't great, but it looked fun to me. I, I'm trying to think, though, other than Fast and Furious, like what car-related – IP. Yeah, I mean, I know so little that there could be other people like, oh, it could be this, this, or this, but maybe it's Driver or something like that, which could, but that's like, that's different developers and, actually, Driver's EA isn't, that wouldn't make any sense. So, it's, I'm trying to think in reverse, because we were talking about Bioshock and the film being licensed earlier, 
And from my perspective, it's like, okay, it's Take-Two, same entity. Now they're working with a license outside. They're kind of getting into that cross-media play. They're making a cross-media play. Mm. But what is it? Mm, I don't know. I'm going to say Fast and Furious. Although, that was, there was that Fast and Furious game like a couple of years ago that was apparently like trash, like absolute abject trash. And so maybe it's not something that you want to go back to necessarily. We'll see. It's time for us to get into what we're playing. Now, I want to begin this with a letter from Samuel or a note from Samuel. He says, hi, guys, UK listener. First time writing in, but I've tuned in forever. Welcome. I didn't know you guys had radios in, uh, in the UK. Radios. We'd love to see you speak more on the games you're playing. Love the show. This has been a piece of feedback we've been getting recently, that we're not talking enough about the games we're playing. And I'm wondering how you feel about that whether you agree or disagree. Because my opinion on this is we never really talk about the games we're playing because that's for Sacred Symbols Plus. And that's not me saying, like, I want you to subscribe and all that because we release all of those ultimately for everybody, as you know. But it's more like this is a show about the news and the analysis and the, the ecosystem and what's going on. And we kind of, what we're playing is kind of, a, is kind of like an inter, intermission, let's say, before we get into the rest of the news. I don't feel like it's the most important part of the show. I love doing the 60, 90, 120-minute deep dives in the games like we do on Sacred Souls Plus constantly, but I think people are not getting them recently because there's nothing coming out. Now, we finally have things to talk about. Horizon, we're definitely going to do one on that. Dying Light 2, definitely going to do one on that. Elden Ring, definitely going to do one on that. I wanted to do one on Monarch, but it's getting bad reviews. So who knows? So we hear you loud and clear, but I would argue that that's never really been what this show is. and I don't know that I've ever really done that on any of my shows. Like, where I'm like, let's get deep into this game on this main episode of Podcast Beyond in 2010 or something. Like, that never happened. So I wanted to say that I hear you, but just be patient because it's hard for us to talk too deeply about games when not all of us have played one, you know, the same game that we can share. And also, I think people are getting a little ahead of their expectations with our particular show because we, we don't want or have access to PR, so we have to wait till games come out. Mm-hmm. Everyone, all of our competitors are going to be done talking about Horizon by the time we start talking about Horizon, which I personally think is a massive advantage to our show, by the way. But nonetheless, that's kind of where I wanted to place it, but I wanted to let you know, Samuel, and others that you are heard. Dustin, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, I think that we, I in particular, want to be sensitive to not spoiling games as well and so it's hard to get too deep into games at least i feel like to have a a solid conversation without uh spoiling things and so i think that you know we i like to give when when we do what we've been playing to me it's like a little overview like i want to give you a little sample of my experience sometimes that's little sometimes that's a lot uh, I'm I'm excited to give you an update this week on a game that I've I've been playing and my experience with it and I uh yeah I, I like saving the deep dives for individual episodes maybe we we could be more in depth at at certain points but overall I I, I kind of in agreement that the show has mainly been a a news show first and foremost and this right. is uh you know just just to familiarize like hey this is Maybe something cool you should check out if, if what I'm saying about it appeals to you. I wanted to read this letter from Niall G. as well. It says, greetings, CDC. I want to thank and commend you guys when discussing games and not using any form of scoring or rating. 
It adds much more depth to a conversation and isn't undermined by a 5.2 or a 6.4. Not to name names, last week I saw another game news company tweet about their new patent five-point scale like it was an infomercial from Better Call Saul, a company that has expanded to the point that I feel like it's kind of lost its identity in recent years. Do you feel like them having a scoring system is to convey a sense of uniformity with such a large team, or is it something deeper? People are talking about kind of funny, my old company here, and it's interesting because it has created this, not even about them, but just about this, this conversation about scoring and how unusual it is to see a company embrace scoring and in an era where if anyone's doing anything, people are moving away from scoring. Now, again, the cynic in me, I think, knows why they've chosen to do this, and I don't really blame them. It's smart marketing. It'll probably get them on Metacritic and all that, so that's good. But for me, I can't analyze things through that lens, personally. Like, it's it's hard for me to do. I, I will fully admit that when I was at IGN, I reviewed hundreds of games at IGN. I have, I don't know if I would score any of them the same, even though I think if I went and read the text, I'd be like, yeah, this is exactly the way I felt about the game. I can think of scores that, I, I've said this before, that I would change, no doubt. There are games that I overscored. There are games that I underscored. Because, like, it's not any other reason than it's the way you interpret the feeling and the word combined with this number, this very unscientific thing in that moment, and then you can even look back at it later and be like, what the fuck was that? Like, I underscored the original Wolfenstein Machine Games game. I overscored PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale. Very rarely do I feel like I really nailed it with, like, Last of Us 10, of course. But I don't find value in these scores, so it's not so much about what kind of funny or others are doing, but more about what is the value in that. Especially a five-point scale I find very dubious. But I also found the 100-point scale at IGN insane. And you would notice that with very rare exception in my reviews would always be 0.0 or 0.5. So I'm like, I don't know that I can even tell you what the difference is between a 7.3 and a 7.5. I don't fucking know what the difference is between that. None of us know. And that's what I think maybe kind of funny is walking into a trap in a way because it's like it seems to me you're going to have to defend what you're saying based on these, new, these arbitrary numbers, but no one was asking you to do that probably, you know? Or a few people were asking you, it kind of sacrifices the product. I worked, I founded that company, I co-founded that company. I know that our mantra at that time was like, we would never do scores. So obviously something has changed, and that's totally fine. But it has brought up this really interesting self-inflection, or I'm sorry, self-reflection point for a lot of people in the industry that I've been seeing kind of happening about, well, what is the value of scores? Why have scores in this and all and that? So I appreciate their, their adopting the score just to, you know, restart the conversation and remind me, no, well, we're not ever doing that, ever, ever are we going to do that on this show. If the Dukes want to do that one day, that's their show. They can do whatever they want, but I highly doubt that they would do that. So what do you think? Do you have anything to add about this one, Dustin? Maybe. So as far as it's kind of funny in their, their five-point scale, you know, that's. I think it, from a business perspective, I think I watched Greg's video on Twitter, and he mentioned they're not trying to get on Metacritic, but to be a part of review roundups. And that makes sense from a marketing perspective, like you said, Colin. Like, I uh, I don't blame them for wanting to get that free PR. That makes total sense to me. But I, I, like you said, scoring games on a on a numeric scale like that, you like you said, you can walk into situations and have to defend yourself, and maybe things change and stuff like that. It's uh, it's not always going to be all positive. But something I think that I just thought of this, Colin. Tell me if I'm out of line. Is we so we we you, you and I both agree that scores by and large are stupid. 
that they are they trap uh, you. They trap you. So, but at the same time, myself included, we we care at least on some level about what a Metacritic score is. I mean, we have right. our our Metacritic draft. So, in some way, we do put value on the numeric scoring of games. But when we're talking about an individual reviewer's opinion, then we're it's suddenly it's like okay, well, we shouldn't have scores. So, do you think that there's some middle ground for this, or? Yeah, I th- first of all, I think you're absolutely right that there is there is like a conundrum between our inability as an industry and as a show to ignore those scores and still use it as a tool to say like, well, this is the assessment of what everyone feels. Sure. And as a developer and like an owner of a of a developer, Metacritic is important because like we're in, we have an 80 in Horizon too. That means a lot. That's a huge deal. You have an eight or higher on Metacritic. And so we understand that that matters, but we wish that it didn't. I must say about the Metacritic draft, I did that because the audience wanted it. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that doesn't indicate to me that I give a shit. I'm trying to predict what the Metacritic score is going to be. I'm not saying it's valuable or not. So I will defend my or defend our decision from that perspective. But there is no doubt that we notice what games get, the way they trend and all of that. And that is part of an industry-wide old problem that I think just we need to get away from because – scores come from newspapers and magazines. You know, little movie blurb. You have 30 words, literally 30 words. And then you give it a star, you know, star. So you say, this Tom Cruise, this Tom Cruise film is explosive and and dynamic. We really, we especially enjoyed the ending, which got incredibly ethereal, five stars. Or whatever, you know, like that's, that's where that comes from. But when you have infinite time and infinite space to say something, you don't need to encapsulate it in a score. And if people are too lazy to get value out of your content without that, I mean, that's just not what we want. So we're not timely enough with what we do, number one, to matter in that regard. So we don't have to worry about that marketing problem. Because when we have something to say about Horizon, it's going to be long after everyone else is done talking about it, as we said. And and I think that that means that people that care about our opinions will come and just listen to them regardless of what we gave it. And when I did do video reviews with Last Stand back in the day, I just didn't score things. And some, that frustrated some people, but I think most people got it. So it's certainly not a slight against Kind of Funny that they decided to do that. I'm surprised knowing the mentality that the company used to have about scoring. But we don't have a marketing problem, not because the show is big or anything like that, but because it's like we don't look at that as a problem. We want people to find the show more organically, I think. And putting a score on something will no doubt invite, let's say, like, Elden Ring comes out, we give it a 9. Horizon comes out, we give it a 9.5 or something like that. Then that's just going to come up forever. Like, what is the point of that? What is even the point of making that a thing? It's not a thing. We're not going to make it a thing. Instead, listen to the podcasts and glean information out of those that way. So, whatever. Okay. With that said, let's get into what we're playing. Dustin, you have one game on your list. Talk about it. Yeah. So, as per normal. I, I usually dabble in a bunch of things throughout the week, but in particular, the, the things I've been playing are, are the same things, so I don't have anything new to say about Pokemon or Uncharted. I do have new things to say about Sifu, though, and I am feeling a bit mixed on this game right now in that I have, I'm at the point where I need to decide if I'm willing to dedicate myself 
to the the hardships and the frustrations in order to beat this game. And so this has been something that's been floating around in my mind the last few days with Horizon and Elden Ring on the uh, you know coming very soon that I I don't know if I enjoy the combat of Sifu enough to suffer through it. And, and I say suffering in a, like, it's very difficult. Like, you're playing a game, it's fun, right? But it's made me think a lot about these really difficult games that I, I really enjoy. You think, you know, we just did that from software episode that you guys are going to hear pretty soon. There's, I've tried to figure out, like, what, what qualities about this difficult game encourage me to keep going, whereas the qualities of this difficult game don't encourage me to keep going. And I don't know if I necessarily have that fully figured out uh, with Sifu yet. I think that it's partially on me uh, that I just don't have certain mechanics of the game quite mastered yet. For example, the part that I'm stuck on right now, uh, which I don't want to – I haven't put in an incredible amount of time in the past. We've been really busy with – doing this live show and trying to get merch set up. So I've been, my gaming has been kind of light, but once Horizon comes out, I'm going to probably spend every moment that I'm not working playing that. So I'm, I'm stuck at this part at the end of level two uh, with this boss. And the key mechanic that I need to master is this ability to, to duck or to jump at, at his attacks. And I, I can't seem to get it. So, I've just been th- like thinking about like do do I want to do returnal this and be like I have to beat this or is this just the point where I I you know break clean from it and say well I've enjoyed my time with this game and I think I'm ready to move on. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but it's just maybe not necessarily what I'm looking for. But overall, Sifu, just to reiterate on some of the stuff I said last week. I very, very much want to emphasize its unique its unique qualities of being a a roguelike in a way with its progression, its aging system. There's so many ideas that just get used over and over again with with very little variation, and so I think it's important to praise something that is an entirely new take. Roguelikes obviously huge, right? Uh, difficult. The how how you progress in these difficult games, um, you know, is an, an important factor of them. And so, I I just yeah, seafood the, the aging system. It's like it's it's its coolest factor, and it's also the thing that is <laughs> makes it so incredibly difficult. It's like it's uh, as you I think I mentioned last week. You age and then you age exponentially, and then so it's just like it's it really can can crush you, but. Overall, for what I wanted to say with this game is that if you like beat-em-up games in particular, this has a lot of that. It has a lot of fighting game elements, which is part of the reason I think I'm not as good at it. Not that it has, like, you know, combos of, like, square, square, triangle, up. But it does have combos where it's, like, you press up twice and then your power attack, and then you have different ways of blocking. It has some a fighting game feel to it. So if you like those elements, and in particular Sekiro fans, it has a very similar similar poise system where you can only block so many attacks before you're knocked down. 
if you like a lot of those elements, you absolutely should check this game out. No doubt. But it will crush you. Uh, and I, uh, I, I don't know. This one may, it may call back to me at some point in the next year or so. Maybe I'm in between games. But I think, uh, I think I'm going to put it down for now. Yeah, I've been sufficiently scared away from just reading some of what people have to say about it. Uh, Josh Kiskall actually wrote into us about the difficulty. He says, hey, guys, I'm playing through Sifu, which I must say is one of the better design games I've played. The first four hours were difficult and spent dying as I learned the game's systems and enemy design. My question is, how is that different from most other things in life? From sports like football and baseball to broader things such as writing and learning an instrument, most things are difficult until you practice and get good at them. Does adding difficulty options in games that don't have them make the game accessible to more people, or is it just allowing more people to shortcut the work needed to get good at something? Thanks, and keep on rocking. Yeah, I think this is interesting. Sifu, uh, Slowpath, the developer, is releasing a, uh, a patch, or has already released a patch maybe with uh, a new difficulty option, which turns a lot of people off. And I, I don't think this is a matter of accessibility. I think I've made this argument in the past that I, I just think so, that we have to understand that games are not for everybody, and not every game is for everybody. So when I found out that Sifu was very difficult, my first instinct was not to ask or want for something easier, but to say, like, this is just not for me. And I don't have, I, I just feel like I'm not going to have the patience or the wherewithal. I, I really only subject myself to brutal 2D games. Like, I just, I'm not very good at 3D games in comparison, and I don't want to challenge myself to that extent. And so I've been sufficiently, yes, yeah, scared off from this game. And I think it's for the best, actually. Yeah, and I think that in the in the position of slow clap, if they felt like they, this is something that they wanted to re- they wanted to release a, an easier difficulty and a harder difficulty as well, then I support them in doing that. They want to make their game more accessible to more people. Awesome. Adding in that difficulty, those different difficulty modes is going to to do that. The the frustration with the difficulty conversation that keeps coming up and will surely be back next week uh, with Elden Ring or within the next week or two is the demand of these developers to do that. And that's where I draw the line is that it's like if From Software doesn't want to do an easy mode, then sorry. That's how they intended and designed the game. Like you said, not every game is for everyone. Not every game is for me or you. And so if From Software decides they do want to release an easy mode, cool. I'd be a little concerned about it maybe compromising aspects of the design, but that's not for me to decide. That's for them as a developer. So I will support them in making that decision, whether it's one I would like or not. But, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the, the easier mode, if it would diminish the experience in, in Sifu, but it's it's cool that that option is there for people that want it. As far as I'm concerned, I've played four games in the last week to talk about uh, Far Cry 6, I finally went back and platinumed, just spent the time with it to do that. That's platinum number 126. I don't think this game will really come up anymore, but I just want to just give it a, a parting shout-out because it is so fucking good. It is just so good. I love Far Cry 6. I think it's awesome. And then Doki Doki Literature Club, I finally went back to and platinum that. That's platinum number 127. I have to give a shout-out to – it was like True Achievements or one of these websites had a walkthrough – where you had to beat the game six times in a very specific way, in a row, like in different ways, to unlock everything. And though I didn't need to do all that because I had like 89% of what I needed unlocked naturally, I just played the game through six times one morning in like three or four hours and just finally got that out of the way. I started Hades. Nice. And I played it for, 
I don't know, an hour, an hour and a half maybe. It's really good. I don't think I'm going to play it right this second, but I am glad that I got a little bit of a taste for what it is and I understand it now, and so I understand the appeal to it. And what I really enjoyed about the brief time I played with it is just, I like Returnal, but it it's not the kind of game I want to play very often where it's like you're not really doing anything to increase your odds of getting through this. You're just going to need to brute force your way through this game. you got to get better at the game, like straight up. And there are little things you could figure out along the way, and I did, and I got really proficient at Returnal, but that game beat the shit out of me. And I feel like the difference with Hades is that you can tell that this is just a much more accessible game. I also see this as a as a natural evolution of Transistor in a way. And, and playing, I was like, wow, this kind of feels a little bit like Transistor in some way, and, you know, in, in look and feel, you know. So we'll get back to that as well. But the game I really want to give a shine to is the following game. And Kevin White wrote in and said, what's up, boys? Just one question for Colin. Have you checked out Infernax yet? This is a Colin-ass game. If I've ever seen one, I am loving it. Thanks, y'all. So I have. Uh, Infernax is out. This is a really, really wonderful game. It's on PS4 and other, and other platforms. It came out on Valentine's Day. And it's uh, from a studio I've never heard of, actually, called Berserk Studio. And uh, Infernax is really good. Really, really, really good. And what I think is so special about it is that it's both proficient as a game, but incredibly nostalgic. This game is predicated 100% on Castlevania II Simon's Quest. And... It became so overbearing that I had to stop and start showing Mike. Like I, I'd, I'd stop the game and go to YouTube and be like, just look. Just look at Castlevania 2. And look at the mermaid en- the merman enemy and look at the background with the mountains and the weird priest dude. and It's like everything. Everything is from this game in Infernax. And it's nice to see a game acknowledge Castlevania 2's importance. Castlevania 2 is really vague and annoying, and I get it. And it even makes fun of that in the game. There's like a scene, there's a thing you have to do in the game where you have to, I won't even ruin it, but there's some really obscure thing you have to do in Castlevania 2 that no one would ever have known to do if you didn't have Nintendo power. It was like ridiculous. And they have something similar in this game. And it feels like that. And you go to these different boss stages that are the equivalent of the mansions in Castlevania 2's countryside. It's just, it's so cool and interesting from that perspective. And Castlevania 2 ended up being really influential on Symphony of the Night, which, of course, is one of the most influential games of all time. And so it deserves a little bit more shine, and I think Infernax gives it that. But there's a few things about Infernax that does that, that are a little different. The One thing it does is it has choices in it, which I think is really cool. For instance, you encounter a dude holding up a priest on a bridge. You can let the guy pay you off to escape, or you can fight and kill him. And that might have ramifications later, and the ramifications, I think, of that decision are if you go back to that bridge later, that guy has something to sell you if you let him go or something. And so you make all these different choices, and apparently there's, like, a good ending, a very good ending, a bad ending, a really bad ending, which, again, is a Ode to Castlevania 2, which had three different endings, depending on what you did in the game and how quickly you did it. And so I think that a lot of people are going to play this not knowing the references, but for people that are familiar with Simon's Quest, it will beat you over the head. And I love it. I just I think it's such a wonderful game, and I'm really having a good time with it. And it fit in that that pocket perfectly between you know waiting for Horizon and that Horizon's going to arrive when Horizon's over. I think you know Dying Light will be in a much more playable state, and so these other things will fall by the wayside. But yeah, Infernax is dope. I highly recommend it if you're into old school games like I am. Someone 
had reference, referenced it to me, I think, on Discord or somewhere saying that it's it's got a Shovel Knight quality to it, and it does, mm. in, in, in the sense that it's very high quality and wears its many uh, influences on its sleeve, but it's something also that is modern and feels right and feels good to play. It's hard as fuck, too. I love that this game has a warning when you boot it up. It's like this yeah. game is very violent. It is not for children. And man, this game, really awesome pixel art that is just brutal. It's they, they take it up a notch, and so I, I very much appreciate it. The very little bit I played, I think I played like maybe half hour. Uh, I think it's on Game Pass. Yeah, it is. That's how I played it. Yeah. All right. So that's all we got there. Let's get into the news. By the way, I'm sorry if anyone, I don't know if you hear it, I don't know if it's coming through, but people are working in my yard, so oh. it might be noisy, I don't know. Hmm. Number one, on the eve of Horizon Forbidden West, we learned some huge news. The original Horizon has surpassed a staggering 20 million copies sold. Word comes by way of Sony-centric sources, including Herman Holst, former director of Guerrilla Games and current head of all PlayStation Studios, who tweeted out the number. These numbers account for both the PlayStation 4 and PC iterations and only include copies explicitly sold and not downloaded for free as part of PlayStation Plus, and it's simply more proof as to why Sony is doubling down on Horizon. The sequel Forbidden West will be on PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 by the time you hear this podcast, but it's not the only Horizon game en route. A PlayStation VR 2 exclusive game called Call of the Mountain is also in development, this one at Sony-owned British studio Firesprite. In further celebration of Horizon, Sony and LEGO have revealed that a 1,200-plus brick LEGO tall neck is coming to stores in May and will stand more than a foot tall once assembled. Sony has also revealed its play and plant program in conjunction with Forbidden West. Sony will plant a tree in conjunction with the Arbor Day Foundation for anyone who earns the Reach the Daunt trophy in either the PS4 or PS5 versions of the game by March 25th. Horizon, which is shepherded by Sony-owned Netherlands-based Team Guerrilla, launched the first Horizon on PS4 in early 2017. It was previously known for its work in the Killzone FPS franchise, spanning PS2, PSP, PS3, and PS4. All right, let's start with... um, these Horizon sales numbers, what do you think? 20 million sold. Yeah. 20 million. It's a lot of copies. Now, obviously not all $60. We're going to talk a little bit about a game that seems to have done even better than Horizon. But this is an incredible feat for a brand that was selling no games at 20 million units. And in five years, they've managed to get this one across the line with the help of PC. How do you feel about those numbers? I think it's great, especially thinking about it being a a new IP as well, and just such a big success story for Gorilla as a, as a team. I man, I remember just the before this game came out, and I actually got to play it a little bit at PlayStation Experience that year as well, and just feeling so intrigued by it, just from its its freshness overall it's it's unique idea you know we have so many post-apocalyptic games and so to get one that is completely different is is really cool this idea of like a this is a post 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 apocalypse where it's it's uh people don't even have any memory of of the old world and they only see it through uh what's you know some of this stuff that's left behind and also, just like these awesome robot dinosaurs. I know. Didn't they say they're like they're not robot dinosaurs? Like, yeah, they they are. Uh, they are okay. robot dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. They're so, awesome. uh, congrats to them. Obviously, 
uh, I think Forbidden Forbidden West is going to just be absolutely massive this week. It's going to be huge. And I, it's one of those things where, yeah, you and I haven't played it yet, but um, and I haven't I haven't watched or read any reviews, but it's impossible Neither. to see just the glowing reactions on on Twitter from from various games media people, and so. Even as as I've tried to avoid it, it's clear that this game is something special. So I'm really excited to dive in. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to it. And I think Gorilla, you know, Sony bought Gorilla more than 15 years ago. It's not not a new acquisition, but that studio I think has paid dividends in a way that they didn't anticipate. Because I think with Gorilla, their intent originally in in signing with Gorilla, Gorilla used to be known as Lost Boys, and they did a bunch of obscure like handheld games. But they made a a, I think it was an IDOS-published shooter called Shellshock, and at that point, Sony signed on with them to make Killzone, and the first Killzone game for PlayStation 2 was made when Gorilla was outside the first party. That was a second-party game, and then during Gorilla, uh, Killzone 2's you know, very protracted development, very eagerly anticipated development, because that game was huge on PlayStation 3, one of the first big games on the console, they acquired them in there. But I think Killzone kind of petered out, and in some way you can imagine a reality in which Shadowfall came out, did what it did on PS4 in 2013, and then Horizon doesn't hit, doesn't work, and that's the end of Gorilla, I think. And instead, this has given them life and movement. I think it's allowed this idea to percolate of Killzone surviving and coming back. And moreover, I think it's given Sony an, uh, an even exponentially more important IP, arguably their third or fourth most important IP, which is really incredible when you think about it, when you consider Uncharted and The Last of Us, and even if you want to put Spider-Man in there, God of War. But it's a big one. And so what I'm most intrigued by is not only Forbidden West, but then what Fire Sprite does with that Call of the Mountain game and how good that is, and if that's available at launch, and what kind of game that is, and if they're going to try to stretch more and more out of Horizon. I imagine we'll get a third game one day. But what are they going to do to Horizon is what, I'm, is what I'm interested in now as well. As we wait for the second game to play it, I'm intrigued by what the end will be. Will they treat it with a little care, or are they going to run it into the ground? Are they even going to have the ability to run it into the ground because it takes so long to make these games? This game took five years, which is not a very long time, but it was built on the, the architecture of the old game. I mean, it's the same engine and, you know, Decima. It, it was made on the same hardware. They didn't have to overcome a lot of the same challenges that they did, that they did when they went to first person, from first person to third person, when they went from shooter to action. So I think there's a lot of really exciting potential. And I mean, I thought about that. And I don't know if it will pan out or not, but we'll see. The other thing I wanted to bring up here is the Lego set. So yeah, what do you think about this tall neck Lego? Now, this is a real thing. Of course, we got caught in the snare. A few weeks ago, of the, right. in the Lego world, of the of the fake rumor with the Uncharted thing, which we, we talked about then, but this is real. It's a Lego tall neck, more than a thousand pieces. It looks pretty neat. Are you gonna pick this thing up? You know, Colin, I I kind of have been down on on Legos since I started to get into model kit building, but I'll tell you, this one intrigues me and looks really really cool and. You know, it's 80 bucks, which Legos are just expensive overall. It's It feels a little high, but, man, I love – there's a lot of nice details in it. Like, they got the, the little walker guy at the bottom as well. Have Aloy. And I, I think that – I'm trying to remember the trailer. Does it have some kind of light-up component if you put Aloy on know. the top? 
Uh, let's see, Lego, Horizon. Uh, I, I swear there was, like, some extra thing. Now, I will say overall, Lego has been really killing it with the, these licensed uh, things that they do. Uh, okay, it doesn't have any, like, electronics. That was just a dramatization for the trailer. But it looks cool, nonetheless. But the the Lego Seinfeld set, uh, Ben was telling me about that he just built it recently. And he's like, yeah, it was awesome. There's so many small details for fans of the show in that. And uh, this uh, this is a, a Lego I would be proud to uh, display in my home. So I think I will get it, most likely. Nice. I don't think I will because I don't know. I, mean, I have plenty of room, but I just I have too many things. Mm. I just don't need more things in my life. From a, I like Horizon. I love Horizon, but it's not. I'm not that passionate about it where I need to have a tall neck in my life. Mm. I might get it for my nephew though. We'll see. I also wanted to acknowledge the tree thing. Wet Willie wrote in and said, Top of the muffin to you! Wanted to give Sony some kudos for their initiative to plant up to 288,000 trees in the U.S. for players who pop the Reach the Dawn trophy in Horizon Forbidden West. It also appears they have a similar program in other geographic regions for the same trophy. Upon looking into the details, it seems like mostly a PR move in terms of how it's being presented, but it's still something that Sony did not have to do. Here's to hoping that the signal is the start of a continued real-life benefit to trophy hunting. Sony PR, if you're listening, and we all know you are. Please continue this type of initiative in other games moving forward. Yeah, so nothing happens in the corporate world for straightforward reasons. I always make fun of, and I think I've done on the show, hotels when it's like they put the little card on the on the table and it's like, unless this card is on the bed, we will not wash your sheets because we want to be a green company. It's like, no, you want to not wash the sheets because it's more work and you have to spend the money and the labor and all that. But it's good for the environment. And so that's your spin. With this, Sony is no doubt getting a nice tidy write-off for their philanthropy, and that's good for their bottom line, and they're always going to seek ways to give away money. Every major corporation does, because it's good to give away money when you have a lot of it. But that's okay, because the benefit is still real. 288,000 trees in the United States planted because of this game, potentially, and surely that that will happen, because the game's going to sell millions of copies. I just wanted to give a shout-out to this. I thought this was a really cool idea. I'm actually a big fan of um, the Arbor Day Foundation. I'm a huge fan of – I love trees. Like, I love trees. I think they're awesome. Like, I just love trees, uh, especially the cedar tree. That's my favorite tree. And I just – we need more. I was listening to a Joe Rogan episode recently with a global warming scientist – or I'm sorry, climate change scientist, and he was saying that the Earth is getting greener and greener as we have more and more carbon in the atmosphere and how that's good. It, it gives us better crop yields and – and, and more of this. So I think to mitigate global warming or the effects of climate change that are man-made as well, planting trees is a wonderful way to make that happen. Sorry, I was looking at my phone, so I don't know. Uh, you probably, this probably won't come through, but they're, they're building the concrete around my pool. Okay. So there's progress and, on the pool. Yeah, and so I'm just very carefully watching what they're doing. That's all. Okay. Yeah. Just gotta make sure they're not, uh, you know, no funny business while they're. It's exciting. Yeah. This actually wasn't supposed to happen until tomorrow. Oh. And uh, and uh, it's happening now. So, but we'll take it. We'll take it. They're still Definitely. anyway. Okay, so shout out to Sony PR for the Arbor Day thing. Shout out to Lego for the tall neck. Shout out to Gorilla for the wonderful success of Horizon. We cannot wait to play the sequel on PlayStation Five, having bought it on PlayStation Four. Mm. So thank you for that. Number two, and I told you this is going to be a little bit of a celebratory episode for Sony. Number two, the numbers are in for software and hardware sales for the month of January 2022 in the United States, and they are great for Sony. PlayStation 5 outsold both Xbox Series X and S and Nintendo Switch for the month. 
This includes both units sold and total money made. This represents a return to form for PS5 following the tumultuous and competitive months that saw Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony all searching places. When it comes to software, it should come as no surprise that Pokemon Legends, what is this, Arceus? Is that how you say it? I believe it's Arceus, but I've heard it both ways. Was the month's best-selling game. Made all the more extraordinary by the fact that it took the top spot without counting any digital sales. I want to repeat that. That Arceus or Arceus game is the best-selling game in the United States against all other games, only counting physical games sold. That's actually pretty amazing. Other notable games include Call of Duty Vanguard at 2, God of War at 5, Miles Morales at 6, Rainbow Six Extraction at 9, Battlefield 2042 at 10, and Far Cry 6 at 12. When broken down by platform, PS4s and PS5's best-selling games in the U.S. for the month were in order. Call of Duty Vanguard, Miles Morales, Madden NFL 22, FIFA 22, Rainbow Six Extraction, Ghost of Tsushima, Spider-Man, Battlefield 2042, NBA 2K22, and Far Cry 6. Now, you might notice a game is missing there. So analysis of the numbers indicates that God of War's very strong showing in the United States was aided by, you guessed it, a very well-received launch on Steam. And there you have it. You know, even though it was out of the top 10 PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 games, it was still the fifth best-selling game of the month uh, in the United States overall because of that Steam release. That's why you put the games on PC. Yeah. So congratulations to them. Any standouts there for you? I think Extraction seems to be doing decently considering it was on Game Pass. Yeah. I was thinking about that. You know, at 9, it's it's pretty pretty good for, like you said, on Game Pass for both PC and Xbox, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and also, I'm pretty sure that that game is not very good. It's not. It seems to me. I almost. Bu- I gotta. Be, I gotta admit, I almost bought it. Oh. I was like, I just had this itch a few weeks ago where I was like, man, I want to play a shooter, you know. Mm-hmm. But I stopped myself. I'm like, I don't need this game. I don't need this game. This game has PlayStation Plus written all over it. Yes, it does definitely. Otherwise, no. Congratulations though to God of War. I mean, resurging. We'll see how long that sticks around on the MPD. I'll be tracking that. All right, more good news. Number three, Insomniac Spider-Man spinoff, Miles Morales, is incredibly popular. In fact, after only 14 months on the market, it is already the PlayStation brand's third best-selling exclusive game of all time across all PlayStation platforms, dating back to 1994. This is unbelievable data from the MPD group, which tracks American sales data. And what makes this number even crazier is that it's not total units sold, but in money grossed. You'll recall that Miles Morales actually sells for $10 less than a standard PlayStation 4 game, meaning it must have sold even more units to make that much money. Launched on PlayStation 5 as a launch game in the fall of 2020, Miles Morales also came to PS4. The only two better-selling games for PlayStation exclusives, other than Miles Morales, came in the form of 2018 Spider-Man, from which Miles Morales spawned, and Santa Monica Studios 2018 reimagined God of War. Insomniac, purchased by Sony in 2019 following Spider-Man's launch, was acquired for the cut rate of $229 million, a small fraction of what Sony later went on to spend for Bungie just weeks ago. Dude, Miles Morales is murdering. Yeah. Murdering. And they're not being explicit with copies sold, which is fine, because they're being explicit that his money's made. And it's a it's a budget game. And it's the third best selling PlayStation exclusive ever. What do you think of that? I think it just goes to show, first of all, that some of uh what Sean Layden was saying before he was ousted or left or whatever happened with him is true that we don't necessarily need a whole remade new sequel every you know six or seven years that there's possibilities for these interstitial titles and miles morales man i think that that game was was awesome and it was also just um it was good for sony that 
not only was this game already so popular, but then you have Spider-Man, the new movie, No Way Home, right? Yep. Yep. now, I I don't know if it is officially yet, but it was, like, possibility go, of going to be, like, the biggest box office ever or very close in the top five, maybe top three. So you have that crossover also of people that are excited about Spider-Man just across the board. And so that's going to encourage them and have people more people go out and, and buy the game. And it's awesome because the game is good. Sometimes games sell uh, because of a, a unreal, the brand being popular somewhere else and it's not good and it's like ah well it's just selling because it has the brand attached to it right it's spider-man but in this case the game is also pretty dang good so overall it's uh good to see it's spider-man's interesting people really really love that character like are very i feel like people have the most close attachments to spider-man and probably batman i would assume are the two biggest superhero characters Definitely. It was, hmm. it's interesting to go back and even imagine a time when Marvel was in trouble, but it was yeah. true. And that these deals go all the way back to that point in time. And that Sony, unlike Paramount and I think others, and even Sony itself with some other properties, ended up relinquishing some of those rights because they weren't exercised. They remade Spider-Man after the Tobey Maguire ones to keep the to keep the license. That's why it happened. And it ended up being incredible for them. Like, just crazy. You're right. It's it's unbelievable, really. And I think the bigger thing to this point, I think, Dustin, is just Insomniac for $229 million was the fucking steal of the century. Oh, that yeah. Is a, that is a billions of dollars company now. That is maybe the most important studio Sony owns. That has certainly come in late in the PS4 era and early in the PS5 era to basically drag a lot of the first-party content through. Spider-Man, Miles Morales, Ratchet and & Clank. And people are like, ooh, organic, you know, organic. What's organic about mixes? What's or-? You want to talk about organic? Um, Insomniac. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, it brought out the best of both parties. It brought out the best of the IP. The only person who lost is Ted Price, who could be a billionaire right now. Mm. But I'm sure he's happy with his hundreds of millions. And uh, it's a it's a marriage made in heaven for PlayStation. Spider-Man plus First Party plus Insomniac plus PlayStation exclusive has been formidable. Sorry, uh, you were about to say something. No, so this is, I mean, related to what we're talking about, but not to what you were just saying. You were talking about how they remade Spider-Man to try to keep the rights. It, right. it awoken this memory in my head, and I found evidence in 2014 there was rumors that Sony was developing an Aunt May Spider-Man spinoff movie. <laughs> like, just doing whatever they can. Like, we got to keep this. But uh, I think that was around the time, kind of, the Spider-Man timeline, not necessarily fresh in my mind. I'm trying to remember when the Andrew Garfield ones were kind of tapering off, and so they were trying to figure out what to do. This is before they got into bed. With Disney and the, you know, the Marvel MCU Spider-Man movies, which I don't even really know how they worked out that deal. But they were, I don't know, maybe this rumor isn't true, but it's funny to think about either way that they were thinking about. Uh, this is from Collider. It would be an espionage film and focus on a young Aunt May. Wow. That's Anything so dumb because isn't she's like not, she's kind of incidental, isn't she? Like, 
I mean, she's an important character, but as yeah. of the time Spider-Man becomes Spider-Man, she has nothing to do with anything before that, right? She's not like a fucking superhero or something. No. No, no, no. Not to my what knowledge. The hell are they? God, that's so corny, man. It's good. You know, it's really... It benefited... Remember, Marvel didn't have control of this. It was Sony that gave Marvel access again. Like, everyone can be together again, right? I think that started with, like, Civil War or something. And I think that was good for Sony because it got... Like, now Marvel can kind of worry about, oh, let us do the storytelling. Let us kind of massage this. You guys control the rights. You can make all that money. You got your studio working on not only Spider-Man, but Wolverine, and probably more. I mean, I would not be surprised if there was another Marvel game somewhere in the studio's family. I don't know how much you want, but why not? I mean, the only thing that would be interesting, although I don't know if Sony would do it, what do you think of this? Like a, like a DC game. It seems like something that, obviously, WB does on its own. It's all third party. And maybe they'll be purchased one day. Obviously, AT&T was very interested. Warner was very interested in spinning those studios off, but it just never happened. But I don't know if they would bite the hand that fed it. And you could see DC falling in with Xbox. In fact, I'm surprised that that didn't just happen. Right? Like, fine. If that's what you want, we will go and get our guys. And I would argue that would be even more formidable because I think the only game that has more potential, to your point about what's more popular... Is Batman. I mean, if you did a Batman game that was truly great, truly great, even better than a stat, uh, 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 Asylum, right? Arkham. I think people would buy into 20 million units. You know, so it's interesting that kind of whole dynamic because outside licensing and how important that is because Spider-Man is really intrinsically linked now with PlayStation. It's not going anywhere. And I think that that would be the last game you would see on Xbox out of the first party. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, DC is is weird in that they kind of really ebb and flow on whether they have a positive uh, feeling from the, the the consumers overall. From what I can tell, it's like they have to reboot every like few years. It feels like, and like we're get, well, we're getting another Batman reboot pretty soon, which it looks fine. That it looks, looks good. It looks cool. I also heard that the sequel make up Mr. Freeze, which is what I've always wanted Ooh. in one of those serious Batman movies. Mm. You know? Yeah. And now, like, right now, um, Peacemaker is really popular on HBO, so who knows? You have to imagine that Phil Spencer would be looking at that and be like, yeah, we we want our Spider-Man game. We'll see. Hard to say. I think WB's very happy keeping everything multi-platform, but well, you know, money does talk. It's true. Number four. In a surprise twist, Cyberpunk 2077 has come to PlayStation 5 with a long-promised native release, toting a ton of updates. As you'll no doubt recall, Cyberpunk 2077 was such a disaster on PlayStation 4 when it came to the platform in late 2020 that Sony stripped it off of the PSN for some six months while developer CD Projekt fixed the game. It remained on competitor storefronts during that time. Thus, many PlayStation gamers have been waiting for the next-gen port, and it's now here. Most importantly, the port has two modes, performance and ray tracing. Performance allows for 4K resolution at 60 frames, while ray tracing allows for 4K resolution at 30 frames with ray tracing. Naturally, both opin- uh, options take ample advantage of the console's SSD for quick loading. Dual senses engage with all sorts of haptics, and a ton of fixes come with the game, also made available for the PS4 version from, from a patch list so long that it will take you a very long time to read it. This is all good news as Cyberpunk 2077 was in disastrous shape from many perspectives, from AI and animation to Quest and UI. And to perhaps buy some goodwill from a skeptical audience, a free trial for the game will give any interested player five hours of access before you decide if you want to keep pay to keep going. Recall also that the game has promised DLC in development, though the timeline for that content is far behind schedule due to the many necessary fixes made over the last one-plus year. 
CD Projekt, the Polish team behind the game, was previously best known for 2015's The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, which itself is coming to PlayStation 5 with a native port later in 2022. David Hallroden said, Greetings, gentlemen. CDPR recently announced and subsequently released their next-gen upgrades for Cyberpunk 2077. Whilst the presentation was incredibly sloppy in my eyes, they do seem to have made some worthwhile and much-needed improvements. Colin, I know you said you were waiting for this update to play it. Is this something you still plan to do? And do you guys, like me, question the timing of this announcement, with it being so close to the limelight stealers Horizon and Elden Ring? Stay well, and all the best. It's funny, because you're not the only person to write in about about this. John also wrote in with a similar conspiracy theory that we were going to read as well. But first of all, I want to say that, no, I don't think it has anything to do with anything. Sony had, there's a PlayStation blog post about it. The demo is on PSN. They obviously knew about this. I don't think Sony cares. I don't think this game is going to do anything to Horizon or Elden Ring, so I don't think it really matters from that perspective. But the news was unexpected, and it leaked a little bit early, so it wasn't a huge surprise when they actually announced it, unfortunately, for them. What do you make of Cyberpunk 2077 finally coming to PlayStation 5 and what seems to be an appropriately, appropriately playable format for the very first time on PlayStation? Yeah. I This is exciting. I think uh, Chris mainly was the – I don't – was I even on this show when Cyberpunk came out? I don't think so. I, no, you weren't. My experience – That was the, uh, December 20 – December 2019. 19, yeah. No, 2020. December – I'm sorry. No, December 2020. December 2020. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but either way, my experience was on PC, which was buggy but nowhere uh, quite to the – standard PS4, Xbox One performance at all. So this game, I always felt, was actually pretty good as far as, like, what the game itself on proper hardware was good. It suffered from uh, marketing, promising things, and making it appear like something that it's not, um, which is definitely a big issue. But I feel like if you just take Cyberpunk for what it is, it's actually pretty awesome game, particularly the world. Night City is such an interesting city to even just, like, drive around and look at. It's really, really cool. So I'm glad that it's now in a state that is, uh, from my understanding, acceptable on these next-gen consoles. And apparently, if you played the PS4 version on PS5, it was actually decent still buggy, but it didn't have the, the major performance, like 15 <laughs> FPS issues. So it's uh, it's good to see that it's out there. I think it's awesome that they're doing a demo that's really smart move with people rightfully being probably very skeptical of this game, no doubt. Uh, and then lastly, as far as this conspiracy, here's what's happening is that they've got a DLC planned probably in about three, four months from now. And they know they can't launch uh, it alongside the next-gen version because they got to win people back. they got to say, hey, the, the game is acceptable now. So they got to give people time with it before they ask people for money. So I would expect a Cyberpunk DLC this summer. Yeah, we'll see. And you brought up the demo. Andrew yeah. Griffin wrote in and said, fellas. Well, uh, and he said LTFT. I was wondering what this means. It, it means long time, first time. I had to figure, I had to oh. look at it. Whatever happened to demos, why don't we really see them anymore? Remember the days of the PlayStation Underground magazine discs? Surely some attempts have been made to modernize demos with free-to-play, limited trials, beta tests. But why are we not seeing them more often? I agree. I mean, this is something that they've played around with for a long time on PSN here and there. But it's never been turned on to the extent that I think that they intended to. 
I could have sworn that when PS4 was announced that they said that every game would have a demo. Like, I could have sworn that was something like that was kind of said and forgotten. Could be wrong, though. But it goes into what I've been saying about Steam and others where, especially Steam, though, where Sony just needs to focus on making an ecosystem wherein everyone plays by the same rules. You have the same kind of page where you have forums and, and posts, blog posts, and stuff from the developer and updates and all the rest and communication and guides, but also this idea of trying a game. And it doesn't have to be for the same amount of time, but I think it would be cool for, as part, when you get the SDK, you start getting your games over, part of interacting with the the final legs of it with PSN and getting your game up and, and publishing it should be like, how long can your game be played for free? And it should just be a toggle. And maybe it's no more than five hours. But if you release a game like two-thirds home or whatever that game is that I used to like on Vita that's like 20 minutes long. It's like, well, we don't want our game played for that long. Maybe we want our game played for 10 minutes or maybe we're the rare rare version where we just don't have that. But for most games, I think they can accommodate a half an hour or an hour pretty well and I think it would do a lot to sell copies of the game, of any game. Yeah. I think that this makes total sense. It, for me in particular on Steam, there's games that I bought and then I played for about an hour and decided, hmm, I don't think I really like this. And so I just asked for the refund. And Steam has been awesome. They've never denied refunds or done any, you know, ask questions or whatever. And even if it was – even that, while it's not as ideal as, like, an integrated demo situation, that would at least be a step in the right direction. Right now, getting a refund from Sony, if a game doesn't uh, meet your expectations for whatever reason, whether it's technical or you just simply don't like it – I'm pretty sure that they're like an all-sales final in most situations. You can't just uh, get a refund for something. So I know that they have done refunds. For, like Cyberpunk is a game that they gave out refunds. And if you can sometimes point to specific things, they may do that. But overall, it's not built into their policy about, like, hey, if you try this game and you don't like it, you can get money back. That just seems to be would be a pro-consumer move overall to do that i get it there's people that will abuse the system and play for two hours and then just use it as a you know like a a, a mini rental but you're never going to make their money anyway so you might as well just do it and then yeah probably get more sales because there's people that don't want to plop down especially now 70 dollars which i know we've said that we are we understand and are okay with the price of games going up, but it's still a lot of money. So people want to make sure that what they're buying is something that they actually want and feel confident buying. And what what a better way than letting people check it out. Yeah, I agree. Hopefully they come around on that, though. I'm not confident. Number five. As noted last week, it's fairly apparent that celebrated Japanese developer Platinum Games may be in some sort of trouble. After all, they are openly talking about reviving a dead Xbox-exclusive project for some reason, and now we've learned that they're open to acquisition as well. Now, being open to acquisition isn't new. Mergers and acquisitions are happening at breakneck speed throughout the industry. But openly talking about desiring that outcome is unusual. As relayed by website Video Games Chronicle, which spoke to the developer's CEO, Atsushi Anaba, the team is completely open to the possibility of getting gobbled up. He told the website in part, quote, The most important thing for us is to have the freedom to make the game that we want to make. When I hear about the recent acquisitions, I don't think Microsoft is going to start microman. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't think Microsoft is going to start micromanaging Activision to where they take away all of their freedom. I don't think it's going to be a relationship like that. I think there's going to be a lot of mutual respect there, and I think Activision will be able to continue doing what they do best. 
That's also what's most important to us at the end of the day, whatever form that takes for us as a company. So I would not turn anything down so long as our freedom is still respected, end quote. In a continuing trend of desperation, the studio has revealed that it's releasing its online action RPG Babylon's Fall earlier than intended. Due out for all audiences on PS4, PS5, and PC on March 3rd, players can begin a new demo starting February 25th and gain three-day early access starting on February 28th if they buy the digital deluxe edition. Babylon's Fall, published by Square Enix, seems almost certain to fail, having generated virtually no buzz. Platinum Games, once one of the industry's brightest independent studios, is best known for its Bayonetta franchise, which began in 2009, as well as the likes of 2009's Mad World on Wii, 2010's Vanquish on PS3, 2013's The Wonderful 101 on Wii U, and most notably, 2017's smash hit Near Automata. However, the team has also made a series of bad games and bad business decisions, creating a poor Star Fox title for Nintendo, ill-fated licensed games in the TMNT and Transformers uh, series for Activision, and more. It also notably had its Xbox exclusive, the aforementioned Scalebound, canceled. Though, as noted earlier, it seems intent on trying to revive it. I wonder why. This, um, Platinum's acting strange. I don't know how anyone could see that otherwise. I'm curious, especially as a fan of Nier and others, what what you make of this, because it seems like they're a bad game away from maybe being done, and the writing seems to be on the wall for them, and it's it's shocking. They've just not done a good job of focusing. They they grew too big, they tried to do too many things, and they they arguably have more mediocre and bad games than they do good games at this point. Definitely. And there's something to be said, too, about some of the games they currently have in development. Look at Bayonetta 3, how long they've been working on that game since it was announced. It's, uh, it's one of those things where Bayonetta was uh, – is do they – does Platinum own that IP? Or is I, it, I don't know if it's – like, Sega published the first one, Nintendo revived it, so my assumption is that the different companies own the publishing rights to them. Because yeah. Bayonetta 1 did just come to PS4 last year. Right. So, right. so I guess either way, it feels like Bayonetta is a – a child of Platinum. That is their something that they've created and fostered, right? And so you look at how they haven't even been able to really get Bayonetta 3 on track for years, which we finally saw gameplay last year, but... Still, it was announced in 2017. Yeah. So, and then you look at Scalebound and what happened with that, uh, which apparently was more on the Platinum side than the, than the Microsoft side. I don't really know that. It's just something I've seen on Twitter and stuff like that. But either way, there seems to be major management issues uh, at this company. And so you're right. They definitely sound more desperate. Or it's almost like the calm before a storm of how bad Babylon's Fall could potentially be. And this is a game, this is a live service game that they are technically... They have some obligation to continue to support it to the people that do buy it, and that's going to be a money sink. And if there's if there's very few players there, then they're going to be tied up with that. You have to imagine they should support it for at least a year or something. And yeah, it'll be up to Square Enix, I think. You know, and it Square Enix has just gotten wrapped into some of these bad service games. I don't know. I, I know what they're thinking. They want they want that money, and they have Final Fantasy XIV, which is a good example, and some others. But I don't know. This this game has disaster written all over it. I just don't see anyone really excited about it. I'll be very interested to see when it comes out, how it does, how it's received, how it reviews, all the rest. So we'll keep an eye out on that. But Platinum got that feeling about what's going on with you. Number six, 
Longtime CD project designer and the director of The Witcher 3 and its DLC packs has officially revealed his new studio. The man in question is Konrad Tomaskowitz, and his studio, located in Poland, is called Rebel Wolves. Tomaskowitz, who began working at CD Projekt on the original Witcher project in 2007, on which he was a tester, rose to lead quest designer in 2011's Witcher 2, and then into the director's chair for the ambitious, well-received smash-hit third title. He also acted as Cyberpunk 2077's head of production, though he has obviously left since. As he told website GamesIndustry.biz, Rebel Wolf's first game, he hopes, will be, quote-unquote, the true, or I'm sorry, the holy grail of computer RPGs. To build the game, he's constructed a team of veterans from CD Projekt and elsewhere, and it seems aimed to help ameliorate issues at that team. In a press release relayed by website Eurogamer, he said in part, quote, Collectively, we envision Rebel Wolves as a place where experienced game developers can reignite their passion, where they can focus on their craft and pour their love into an amazing, ambitious title. We want to stay small and agile, a place where people know and care for each other, end quote. The team is using Epic's Unreal Engine 5 to build their first title, a quote-unquote dark fantasy game, that aims to be the first in a, in a franchise. The team is only a dozen people right now, but aims to be at more than 80 in a year's time, according to an extensive interview on GamesIndustry.biz. He says, quote, We want to recreate the feeling of a pen and paper RPG session, where your options seem limitless, where the world reacts to your choices, where every decision matters, end quote. This is interesting because I feel like there's something here where they're not happy with Cyberpunk or with uh, CD Projekt. It seems like they're saying so. They specifically say they want this to be a place where you can reignite your love of games as almost as it was taken away from them. What do you make of this announcement uh, of Rebel Wolves? Do you think anything of it? Yeah, it definitely feels... I don't know. It's not passive-aggressive, but you can't help but read into it uh, like you just did, where it's like, okay, well, what was going on at CD Projekt Red? Just because, in particular, CD Projekt Red, to me, before Witcher 3 came out, I don't want to say it had an underdog feel, but you see there's a, a famous image of their first uh, E3 or some, one of their first times at a show, and it's like a, a cubicle and a laptop where they were showing the first Witcher game. And so it was this, like, cool story about this small... Polish team rising to to create this beloved game with Witcher 3. And then, of course, this uh, just immediate downfall in a lot of ways with, with Cyberpunk. So something happened. Some kind of that, that level of success changed CD Projekt, and apparently not for the better, at least in the eyes of uh, this new team with Rebel Wolves. My biggest question about this project is just when you say the holy grail of computer RPGs, does that mean we're going to be looking at something like a more of a Divinity, Divinity Original Sin 2 type of situation, like a top-down? He mentions recreating the feeling of pen and paper RPG sessions. That's cool. I don't know if that's something that necessarily appeals to me, and I don't, I'm curious about the, the wider market appeal. I mean, obviously, I guess Baldur's Gate 3 right now, that's still in... Um, early access, but that has a ton of hype behind it as well. So maybe there is something there, but um, I guess I, I'm just curious on what what exactly does it mean by computer RPG? Does it mean CRPG? Because yeah. if so, it's a, I don't want to say it's disappointing, but it's not what I would want personally, but that's okay. Yeah, who knows, what the tra- like, who knows what's said in translation and, right. and all of that, because there's a few weird things that they say in here, but... We'll keep an eye out. Ben Stender did write in, right in, though, and he said, hey, guys, just a comment. With the announcement of Rebel Wolves, a new studio led by the director of Witcher 3, I can't help but feel that one of the worst parts of the acquisition environment is everyone wondering who will buy this new team rather than be excited for their new project. 
I feel like the acquisitions have begun to suck the excitement out of these announcements. People can speculate all they want, but you have to understand most people have no idea what they're talking about. A lot of these new teams being founded are not exciting in my, in my point, from my point of view because it's like, okay, you exist now. That's not exciting to me that you exist. I, I, I want to see a game from you. It's like when that, that studio, That's No Moon or whatever was announced with all mm-hmm. these veterans from Call of Duty. It's like, who gives a shit? It, it's cool, but I want to see your game first. So how do you feel about this idea of acquisitions kind of ruining these announcements? To me, I'm, I'm rarely excited by the announcement of a new team vaguely because it's there's nothing to show yet. There's nothing to see. No, nothing to say. I yeah, it's it's one of those things where you, you got to have a big PR blast in order to search out for more developers, right? Like they said they want to have 80 people by uh, you know, how long was it they said? 80 yeah, in a year's time. So you got to you know, it is a big PR thing to be like, yeah, the guy that was the the head of Witcher 3 is at a new team. They're looking for more people. It's not necessarily exciting from a, you know, what kind of game we're going to get. But I understand the reasoning behind it. As far as what Ben writes in with the acquisition talk, is, is there actually people speculating about, like, oh, who's going to buy them? It's like I'm sure there are, like, on Twitter and stuff, but there are people yeah. always speculating. They don't know what they're – these are the same people that said, like, oh, Bungie, you know, Sony owns Halo. It's like, oh, right. oh yeah. my God. You know, like, so that, them speculating on, on this is meaningless to me. These studios are certainly, I mean, what we don't know about Rebel Wolves is where they're getting their money from. What what people are not understanding sure. is that they're already owned by someone. Someone already owns the team. Someone's already funding the team. Now, if the, the entire idea is to spin it, and, or flip it rather, then that's fine, but I, I would doubt that that would happen before the game was even sold. You know, yeah. Or, or well, is, has there ever been a case of that where a, a, a team, an entire team has been sold and bought by a game that's in pre-production? <laughs> like, that just seems a little... Like, uh, putting the carpet Maybe, before. like, Respawn kind of was in there, like, where they were founded by EA, mm-hmm. but I don't know if they were, I don't know. I, I, mm. I don't, if it's, if it does happen, I'm, I'm sure I can think of something if I think long enough, I'm not going to sit here and do that. All right, let's get into number seven. Over the last few years, PlayStation has found itself embroiled in some minor yet meaningful controversy over what appears to be over-censoring of games appearing on its platforms. A strange move for an entirely, uh, an entity, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, widely known for its adult realistic, and often violent games. The most recent target is the upcoming horror game Martha is Dead. A historical thriller set for launch imminently, the game is developed by a studio called LKA on behalf of a publisher called Wired Productions. According to a posting on its official social media feed, however, the game is in the process of being censored. Here's what the team says in part, quote, Martha is Dead is a narrative adventure recommended for adult audiences only, with play consisting of potentially, uh, of potentially discomforting scenes and themes that may distress some players. Both Wired Productions and LKA have always been open and honest about Martha is Dead content, with the sensitive depictions in play consistently communicated to the media since the game was announced in 2019. This content is also flagged clearly and repeatedly within the game itself before play begins. It is with regret that we have to have to modify the experience on PS5 and PS4, with some elements no longer playable. After over four years of passion and hard work, developer LKA now requires extra time to make these unplanned changes." As such, the game will still launch digitally on February 24th as planned, but the physical release will be delayed. Most importantly, however, quote, the PC and Xbox versions of Martha is Dead are both unaffected by these developments and will launch with the full, unedited gameplay as planned, end quote. While it's unclear what the mitigating footage or gameplay was, some sleuths think it has something to do with the scene 
in which a player in first person cuts off a dead corpse's face skin. The game earned an M rating from the ESRB for blood and gore, intense violence, partial nudity, sexual themes, and strong language. Martha is Dead is just the most recent example of a string of weird censorship campaigns by Sony, including the re-release of Catherine, Fairy Tale, Terminator Resistance, and Devil May Cry 5. Kenneth Ohms wrote in and said, hello, my bishopmen. What is going on with Sony's censorship of that indie horror game? It's a mature game for a mature audience, and it's not censored on PC or Xbox. This is starting to make me feel like I shouldn't buy third-party games or indie games on PlayStation. We saw something vaguely similar happen with Devil May Cry, so what's going to be censored next? There is also an article on DualShockers from last year titled, Sony's reportedly censoring violence, the violent depictions in games. Is this recent censorship scandal showing off a new content policy by Sony? I find this mysterious, I think a lot of people do, Dustin, just because it seems inconsistent. I watched the footage that is apparently being cut, and it's pretty brutal. But I don't think that it's any more brutal than what Ellie does in The Last of Us, or The Last of Us Part Two. It maybe has no context compared to those things, and part of well, The Last of Us's impact is the violence. That's part of the point. But we can't say that that might not be the point in this, too. I just, my, my thing, before I kick it over to you, I will say this. I feel like there is more to why Sony is doing this than we realize. And my theory is, is that it might have something to do with some sort of internal specification that they have about content or something that doesn't meet the expectations of an important vendor or something random like that. Like, it just seems to me to be weird to say, like, we're going to pick on this game. We're going to pick on this game. We're going to pick on this game. And then this game, this game, this game, this game, and this game are fine. It seems to be more targeted, and I can't help but wonder if it's there's more to it and they just won't say. What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. There's something more to this that I don't know if anyone's really gotten to the bottom of. And uh, speaking of bottoms, the Devil May Cry 5 censorship was for uh, an ass in the game that they covered up with a, a really dumb-looking lens flare. And what's funny about that one in particular is that they went back and uncensored it later. So some kind of internal something happened where they were like, oh, yeah, actually, you know what? We can have Trish, Trish's butt in the game, and it's not a big deal anymore. And it's also like that one was particularly weird because it's like it's not even like it's not uh, – intercourse or like a penis or a vagina lock more that right. one's for you uh it's it was literally like a butt it's okay it's not a big deal but for some reason that was one of those things that they decided to target for censorship and we it's just such a weird and strange time that sony is censoring games that i can't remember which game it was but one of them was not censored on nintendo switch but it was censored on PlayStation. So, yeah, Colin, I feel like there is something more going on, and I would love for someone to dig this up somehow. Where, where, Where is it in the chain where Sony says, uh, nah, because you're right. I don't feel like they're being completely consistent when we look at this Martha is Dead situation and some of the stuff that's been in Sony first-party games. It's, uh, there's an argument to be made that some of the stuff that's happened is just as bad or, or whatever. So I will say one of the funny things about this Martha is Dead censorship is that when it initially came out, I saw people saying what the censored thing was, and it totally wasn't true. Did you see that where people were no, talking about it being no. a baby and stuff? Oh, no. And then I was like, whoa, okay, that actually is pretty crazy. I they, saw a scene where, like, they take, like, a rock or yeah. something, and, like, you're cutting this dude's face off. Yeah. And I was like, all right, that's pretty brutal, but. 
Definitely. It definitely is. I just, initially I saw some tweets where someone saying it was a, a baby's face. And I'm like, whoa. A baby? Some, a baby. Somewhat, so, yeah, you just can't rip off any baby faces. I mean, maybe on this show, you know, there's baby sacrifices or whatever. Well, it's like, remember in Far Cry, or not Far Cry, in Fallout 3, there was like a colony of kids that you discover on the side mm, quest, but you yeah. couldn't shoot any of them. Like, you, oh, you yeah. couldn't aim or shoot at any of the kids. There's like nothing you could do to them. Is that a platform thing, or is that just a developer thing? It's like, yeah, it's probably best. Like, Grand Theft Auto, there's no kids in in the game, I think, really, at all. And that's just probably, like, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, 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 probably, yeah it's, it's probably just, yeah, exactly to avoid complications. Yeah. All right. Number eight, in what can only be described as unexpected news, it appears that Dead Island 2, in development for about a decade, may be on the verge of not only being re-released, or re-released finally, but also being launched potentially by the end of, the, of this very year. Word comes by way of website Video Games Chronicle, which relays a word from the ever-reliable Tom Henderson, the leaker who has given the industry all sorts of scoops, particularly regarding Call of Duty. He even went as far as to describe how the game begins with a zombie outbreak on an airplane, causing it to crash in L.A., setting off the game's events. As noted by DGC, Dead Island 2 has been completely tortured. It was revealed all the way back in 2014 at the PlayStation press conference at E3 that year, and has been developed in part by no fewer than three lead teams. The first developer, the German team Jaeger, best known at the time for its third-person shooter Spec Ops The Line, began, began development of the title in 2012. By 2015, however, Jaeger was off the project and it went to longtime PlayStation partner Sumo Digital. That didn't last either, though. By 2019, the studio behind Homefront The Revolution, the Deep Silver and THQ Nordic-owned Dambuster, took over, and apparently it's their game we will finally see. You may recall that Dead Island's sequel was com complicated by the fact that the original's lead studio, Techland, went on to work on Dying Light in lieu of Dead Island 2, leaving its publisher Deep Silver hanging. Dying Light finally came to PS4 in 2015. Its sequel just launched weeks ago on PS4 and PS5. It's hard to, rem to believe that that was that long ago. I remember that. I was still at IGN when that game was revealed, which is fucking crazy. That was so long ago. And three studios later, I don't believe that this game has any prayer of being good. I, I would argue Dambuster, I mean, that, that Homefront Revolution game kind of sucks. And that's a real disappointment because it takes place in Philadelphia. It's a cool idea. But I was like, ugh, this game's, this game's really beat here. So I'm not confident in this, but they must be confident enough to pursue it. It's gone through different owners because now THQ Nordic and Embracer are involved. Deep Silver is not its own publisher anymore. Are you looking forward to Dead Island 2? No, not at all. <laughs> the first game, I actually honestly couldn't really understand why why it hit very much, just because I think I borrowed this from from it from somebody when I was in high school, and I just remember it being so exceptionally buggy and didn't run very well. And so I've I've never understood the appeal of of Dead Island, and now especially because it feels like if they're was any magic there with uh, the first one? Then it left when it went to it went to dying light. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I I don't know what this game is holding on to at this point. I guess there's some brand recognition with it being Dead Island, and I know this there was some success with the first one, but at this point, just let it go, in my opinion. But I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully it uh, is worth the wait for people that are excited. But you're probably just better off playing dying light too. Yeah, definitely. I didn't like that island very much. It was it was cool, cool idea. I mean, it was different when it came out. You know, ten, twelve years ago, it's different now with zombies and open world games and all the rest. Number nine, as they do each month, Sony has revealed PlayStation Network's most downloaded digital games this time for the month of January 2022. 
As usual, this data doesn't count physical sales, and for the sake of our list, we're using the American numbers. PS5's top 20 best-selling games for the month on PlayStation Store were as follows in order. Miles Morales, Among Us, NBA 2K22, Madden NFL 22, Five Nights at Freddy's Security Breach, Rainbow Six Extraction, Call of Duty Vanguard, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, FIFA 22, Mortal Kombat 11, Demon Souls, It Takes Two, Rainbow Six Siege, Ghost of Tsushima, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Uncharted Legacy of Beats Collection, Hitman 3, Kenna Bridges Spirits, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, and Returnal. PS4's top 20 games via the PSN were as follows. Grand Theft Auto V, Spider-Man, Minecraft, Among Us, Game Beast, The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, NBA 2K22, Madden NFL 22, Call of Duty Vanguard, Miles Morales, Five Nights at Freddy's, Security Breach, Red Dead Redemption 2, The Forest, Injustice 2, FIFA 22, Five Nights at Freddy's, Horizon Zero Dawn, Dying Light, For Honor, and Star Wars Battlefront 2. On PSVR, the top 10 best-selling games were in order, Beat Saber, Job Simulator, Creed Rise to Glory, Super Hot VR, Swordsman VR, Rick and Morty Virtual Regality, Zenith, The Last City, Gorn, Astrobot Rescue Mission, and Drunken Bar Fight. The top 10 free-to-play games across PS4 and PS5 combined were in order. Fortnite, PUBG, Yu-Gi-Oh! Master Duel, Call of Duty Warzone, Rec Room, Rocket League, Apex Legends, Genshin Impact, Destiny 2, and Brawlhalla. Nothing to really be said there, I don't think. Number 10. In a sizable move, British games publisher and developer Nacon has acquired Daedalic Entertainment for 53 million euros. This adds to a growing stash of first-party teams under the Nacon brand that numbers some one dozen in size, including sports studios Big Ant and Cyanide, racing team Clioton, and perhaps most notable, Greedfall and Bound by Flame team Spiders. Daedalic, founded in Germany nearly 15 years ago, is mostly known for its adventure games, first on PC and later on console. However, its in-development planned 2022 release, The Lord of the Rings Gollum, which Nacon is funding and publishing, is obviously their biggest project yet, and Nacon is impressed enough to put a ring on it. Indeed, Daedalus' relationship with Middle-Earth Enterprises, the company that oversees the Lord of the Rings, is probably a major reason why the purchase price is so high, since that level of access and established licensing cannot be overvalued. And this isn't the only silent acquisition to happen this past week. French publisher Focus Entertainment has likewise expanded its first party. The publisher acquired Metal Slug Tactics developer Liker, best known making it, I'm sorry, its fifth team, which includes River City developer Dodemu and Space Hulk team Shrumon. So, are you looking forward to this Lord of the Rings Gollum game at all? It's it's funny. My friend Brandon actually just brought this up to me uh, earlier this week, and he's like, what happened to that? I said, you know what? That's a good question, because I remember it getting announced, and then finally, I think it was sometime last year, they showed some gameplay. Uh, didn't look too promising. It's It sits in a weird space where I don't believe this is – so it's not licensed – through the movie license. It's licensed through uh, the actual Tolkien estate, so they can't make it... It's not supposed to look like the movie. So it's like somewhere... It sits in this weird space where it doesn't look quite right. And then, oh, yeah, this is the game where Chris said that it looked like Tommy Pickles. (laughs) 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 It looks like Tommy Pickles. (laughs) And that just... uh, That kind of put a damper. Uh, Yeah, that took it all down for you. Yeah, not that I was particularly excited about Gollum, but that was a, a shocking revelation, no doubt. All right, number 11 is a wrap-up. The official PlayStation blog reports bartending game Star Tenders comes to PSVR on March 17th, while 2D action-adventure game Anno Mutationum comes to PS4 and PS5 on March 17th. Lego fighting game Lego Brawls, revealed in last week's Nintendo Direct for Switch, has been confirmed for release on PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5, due out early in the summer. Website IGN reports so-called Bullet Hell FPS Scathe comes to PS4 and PS5 later in 2022. 
Website Gamatsu reports Rhythm Game, a musical story, comes to PS4 and PS5 on March 2nd. Adventure Game Road 96 comes to PS4 and PS5 on April 14th. 16-bit style brawler Final Vendetta comes to PS4 and PS5 at some point in May. An RPG remake, Spellforce 3 Reforced, comes to PS4 and PS5 on June 7th. And finally, NIS's strategy RPG Disgaea 6, which launched on Switch only in 2021, an unusual move for a one-time PlayStation-exclusive series, is coming to both PS4 and PS5 this summer. All right. Dustin, as we end every episode of Sacred Symbols, we'll do it with six questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas from the audience over on Patreon, patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Thank you for your love, kindness, and support over there. We could not do it without you. Early ad-free access, the ability to submit these questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, Discord access, access to the RSS feeds for the early shows, and all the rest. Come join us. Name in the credits, etc. RK128 wrote in and said, hello, Sacred Crew. This is a PlayStation podcast, but this is related to something that happened last year. Nintendo is planning a shutdown of the Wii U and 3DS storefronts in March 2023. And unlike what PlayStation did, I don't expect Nintendo to reverse course on their plans. Do you think Sony's Spartacus service is less of an answer to Game Pass and more of them addressing their currently lackluster legacy support? Microsoft just recently ended adding further backwards compatible titles, and with Nintendo's current moves, this could be a major ace in Sony's hand of cards, so to speak. Thank you for the great content. I'm curious what you think about what Arcade says here, but moreover, a lot of people are really nervous about this Wii U and 3DS news being a harbinger of things to ultimately come for PS3 and Vita, that we kind of got a stay of execution, but that this reminds us that they're still on the clock. I don't know that Sony is going to pull the plug because, as I've discussed on the show and, and as people behind the scenes has, have told me, this is a deep six-figure investment for Sony to keep running. I don't know that it's very expensive for them, and they still have money to make there. But I'm wondering what you think about this Wii U and 3DS storefront closure. It's telegraphed a year ahead of time, what it means for the potential of our closure, our, our revived closures for Vita and PS3. And if you think that Sony's potential ace in the hole is actually the legacy support that they will that they could potentially have that their competitors are kind of issuing. Yeah. I, I mean, the Wii U and 3DS thing sucks for sure, which, sure, you can still – you can get your purchases in now. You can still download them once the store is over, but surely that has a, a time frame as well. And I don't know. Nintendo in particular, I don't – I wouldn't feel confident. And with moves like this, it makes you – it makes me – not ever want to buy anything digital from Nintendo because at least with Sony and Xbox, we've seen them at least take some initiative over the last few generations to be able to bring stuff with you. Whereas, um, which to Nintendo's credit, their systems have been very unique that don't necessarily lend themselves to backwards compatibility as far as like buying a 3DS game and just having it play on Switch, that wouldn't necessarily work. So I, I get it. But it feels a little soon to me for 3DS in the fact that, what was it, like two? I'm trying to think of when their their last big 3DS push. It was, I guess, probably closer to 2019, 2020. So maybe we are starting to get a little away from those systems. But it feels a little soon to me, and... Again, this is somewhere where you and I, Colin, differ quite greatly on, but it just sucks that a lot of games that are digital only on those storefronts will be lost if you don't buy them. They'll be only available to those that have purchased them, and then at some point, they'll only be available to people who downloaded them and have them on their systems when inevitably they cut down that service. So that's why 
I understand the reality. Not every game can be a, a physical game, but I always will advocate for the option of both physical and digital in order to preserve some of these games that will get lost. Because, frankly, what's going to happen with 3DS is piracy after this, is that if you don't give people the option to, to buy these, um, some of these digital-only games, then they just will get pirated. As far as Spartacus, let me make sure I'm understanding this question. Do you think Sony's Spartacus service is less of an answer to Game Pass and more of them addressing their current lackluster legacy support? I think that it's more of an answer to Game Pass above everything else because this is the thing that I've been trying to figure out for years, and I think this is where I want to ask you, Colin, is that we care about legacy titles. We like to go back to these old games. That's something that's important to us, the hardcore, and many of the listeners of this show. But something that I always question is, what is the mass market appeal of that? Yeah. Um, when, when yeah. Particularly when it comes to, uh, we'll say brands that aren't Nintendo, <laughs> right? Like, obviously the NES Classic and the Super Nintendo Classic were huge products that had mass market appeal and people want to play those old games. Sony, yeah, there's more and more uh, nostalgia around the brand with especially some of these early PS1 titles, but I just don't know if they have that same market potential that old Nintendo games do. And so, yeah, it'll be nice when Spartacus gives us some of those options, but I think when when someone signs up, it's going to be for the the modern games on it by and large overall. Do you think that that's I'm I'm thinking along the right path here. Probably, I think they they can do both, and I I, I think we just don't the, the the multi-tiered system of what Spartacus will apparently be. I think will allow them to tackle all of these things. Mm. Nintendo's kind of already doing that because they have that premium subscription for old games now, which I think people are complaining about for no reason. I think that's fine. It's like, what do you want? I I, I think people just kind of complain for complaint's sake, but I know people are a little bit more afraid of what's going to happen to these games, similar to Vita and PS3. PS3 to a much lesser extent, I guess, because it's just so much more prevalent, but what's going to happen to these games as far as their access is concerned, just, just historically. My argument against the whole piracy thing is, is that those games will be pirated one way or the other. I don't think that... As I've said before, and I hate to even admit this, because I, I don't want people to go looking for it, although they can do what they want, you're all adults, I certainly would never do it. But I know for a fact, because I've seen screenshots of it or whatever, there's, a, there's hacked PlayStation Vitas that basically have access to a mirror of the PlayStation Store where there's just no prices, right? Like, where you just get whatever you want. And our games are on there. I know that. And it sucks. I think that that's happening right now, even though you don't have to do that to be that, and you could buy Hybroxia 2 and Filmbreaker right now. Some people just don't give a fuck. And I think that that's sad. It's hard for me to castigate them too much because I was one of those people back in the day, not with games to the extent, but certainly with music. I mean... Napster and all that. I was, I was in 10th grade when Napster came out. I mean, you better believe I was all over that. So we all participated or I participated in these these unsavory things, but the bigger question is what they're going to do with archivists and all that to make sure these games are accessible to some level to someone. And it makes you wonder what the cost of doing business is to just say, like, we'll just make a virtual console that play that accesses the Wii U store available via Switch or something. Maybe see the problem with this, and I know this for a fact. I mean, we all know this is that these games are kind of out there on their own. Like 
it wasn't Switch the first game, first console to really have like a true membership system, right? Are these games attached to the same name that we? Are you signing in with the same name on Wii U, 3DS, and Switch? I don't know the answer to that. I'm because it, I, no. depending on, depending on what the answer is, and I don't don't write because I don't, I don't want to talk about this again next week. But that there could be something to that where it's like we don't. It reminds me of Wii. I spent probably a thousand dollars or more on virtual console games on the Wii. That they're all on just the Wii that I have somewhere in a closet. That's it. Their argument can be like, we don't want to facilitate the purchase of these games that you can't really access freely anymore, or in more difficult ways with friend codes and all the stupid shit that they do. And so they might be, it might be an opportunity for them, should they be a little wiser, to say, like, we're going to bring this stuff over and make a mirror of the Wii U and the 3DS stores on Switch, and you'll have to buy everything again. But they'll be there. That's the best we can do. You know? And I think that, that that would be not great, but maybe the most reasonable expectation but these companies that don't want to make, first of all, these, these machines are vectors for hacking. They know that. Especially if they're all interconnected. Vita was basically abandoned because it is a vector into the very same PSN, you know, that we use for other machines. So they, they got rid of that thing. But I don't know. I'm not worried about this with Wii U and 3DS because I think that, like you said, they have a, you have a year to buy your stuff. And I don't think you should be relying on older technologies to always be available. I think that expectation really begins, in my opinion, with PS4 and Xbox One and Switch. Whereas, like, these games I expect will always be available. This version of PlayStation Network will always be available from this point on. Everything before that, I think, needs to be more manual, and that's what makes it so difficult for them. But we'll see. Devin wrote in, said, Hi, CC and Mr. D. A PSA to all 3G North American Vita owners. AT&T is in the process of shutting down their 3G network in the coming weeks. This is another one of the thousand cuts to the Vita. According to Sony's Vita 3G FAQ, quote, play virtually anytime, anywhere, end quote, approach to gaming will change the way that we consume content and compete with friends via the PS Vita. Did any of you use the 3G capabilities of the Vita or have a 3G-compatible Vita? I personally have a 3G model and never used it. Remember back when Sony announced AT&T as their network partner and then there were audible boos in the E3 presentation? I'll never forget. I was there in the room, and it was... That was surprising because I was like, wow, you never – if anything, audiences at these press conferences are too fanboyish, which maybe is what this was. It's hard to remember that everyone hated AT&T 10 years ago because, for many, amongst many other reasons, they locked up the iPhone. Remember that? Like, you couldn't get an iPhone right. unless you had AT&T. Everyone hated them for that and because their service was bad. But that's not the same company anymore, really. I never used the, the uh, 3G Vita. We had one at IGN, but I never used it. What I remember, though, kind of being ignorant on technology at the time, and I think Sony played into it because I remember specifically a Call of Duty commercial that suggested this would be possible, was like, wow, you, you, I'm going to be able to be on the subway and play Call of Duty with this thing? And they never really dissuaded anyone from that immediately until later. They were like, no, this is for, like, downloading and uploading trophies, and it's not good enough to do that. But they kind of played with that a little bit, and I think that this is one of those situations that was like, this was a little ahead of its time, and I don't know if it would have ever been successful, but it was certainly like an aborted thing that Sony, they stopped, when they reiterated the Vita a couple years later, that wasn't even an option anymore, so I don't think, what I'd be curious about, Dustin, is if anyone has an active 3G account on their Vita, that would be fucking awesome. I just checked, I was pretty sure, but my Vita, if you're watching the video version here, I've got the the 3G SIM card, which I remember now thinking back when I bought it, I want to say that this is just the 
what they had. At some point, I think that they just blended the 3G models into the regular models, and they were the same price because they people weren't signing up for the service. And that's the thing to me why I I'm assuming that for if you had to have AT&T as your provider, and then you had to pay an additional fee on top in order to have your Vita connect to that service, that would make sense to me. But, yeah, it was never something that I would have signed up for. And now it's funny because it's just like something like that is totally useless now with the ability to use your phone as a hotspot. Like no one – you don't need to have devices that have their own uh, cellular in them anymore, which I think that – I think Apple might still sell iPads with cellular, but it's like what's the point? If you got an iPhone, you can just use the the hotspot feature. But – that, man, that legendary moment when they got booed was awesome. I remember, I, obviously I wasn't there, but I remember when that happened. And, uh, yeah, I imagine just being a presenter and, like, getting booed on stage at that moment. It must have been so incredibly embarrassing. 2011, especially because that was, you know, that's like a big corporate deal. Not that you give a shit about the corporations, but there were people in the boardroom and all of that being like, yeah, we made this AT&T deal with Sony and it's going to be big. And then they just get, that, that's like their whole thing, like that they're focused on it for like four months or whatever, like this group of people. And then they're yeah. like, boom, no one uses it. Everyone hates it. It is funny to think about it through that context. Ethan Jimenez wrote in and said, hola, CEC. And Chris isn't here this week, uh, as we said, but so this is somewhat for Chris, but Dustin can answer this too. Last week, Chris made a very good point. That Destiny 2 has a very high bar of lore that you need to know in order to fully enjoy the universe, further discouraging Colin to give it a try. With the recent acquisition of Bungie, do you think there's an opportunity for Sony to have the, most of the game's story retold in a series or movie format? This could be the missing piece for new players of the franchise to keep up with the relevant bits of lore and know what the hell is happening from season to season. Thanks for all your great work and hope you're doing well. Now, we know that the ambition here, primarily with Bungie, is twofold. Number one, to bring their expertise in, in games as a service in the PlayStation, and then in the other direction, give Sony Pictures heft to Bungie to go multimedia. Now, I think you can answer this effectively enough. I'm surprised that we haven't really discussed this, actually, because in all the conversation around Bungie, we really haven't discussed, at least on this show, what the potential for them to do with Destiny is. We're focused on the end of Destiny 2 in 2024 and then what's next. But we're not talking about what they're going to do with Destiny. And certainly that's step one, I would assume, for them to be like, yes, before anything else, let's do Destiny and Destiny. You know, I don't know, like, what it is, though. So as a, as a I'm sorry, not a Horizon, as a Destiny fan yourself, player, Dustin, what do you think? I mean, what what is the multimedia, cross-media potential of Destiny, and do you think that it could be an effective way for them to say, like, this story is rich and robust and science fiction and intriguing and all this, and let's let's do it. Let's do it with a big budget and Sony Pictures and all this. Do you think that we can anticipate something like that, or do you think it'll be more expansive? I think that it would be hard to use it as a tool to get people into the game, which I think Ethan here says is an opportunity for Sony to have the most of the game story retold in a series or movie format. That's Maybe it could be possible, but I think that thinking about uh, Destiny's lore, it reminds me more of like a Star Wars or or Star Trek in that like I think of like going to going to Wikipedia, you can find like a this character who is never maybe has screen time for 
three seconds or something, but yet the, he has this entire history. He has a Wikipedia article the size of Theodore Roosevelt's. Yeah, yeah. it's like exactly that. Yeah. With Destiny, there's some of that that is definitely in there. I know that uh, I think there's a YouTuber. My name is Bife. He, I think his complete Destiny lore video is like six hours long or something, and I'm sure that it doesn't is uh, it probably glosses over some stuff. So it's one of those things that it's like the world is so expansive that you're never gonna. Uh, well, maybe maybe if you're super hardcore, you might try to know everything about the Destiny lore. But that's kind of the nice thing is you don't need to know everything. But I think there is potential of maybe since Destiny now has this issue where you can't play the beginning of Destiny 2 on Destiny 2. They've removed that content. They've removed older stuff that maybe they are able to use a series or a a movie or something as kind of a, a gateway into the world for some people since that introduction is no longer part of the game itself. So maybe there is options for that. I'll definitely say either way, the the sky's the limit, whether it's a, a TV, a live action TV show, a live action movie, an animated thing. Uh, there's just so many different interesting stories you could tell in Destiny. And so that is one aspect of this deal that I am uh, excited about, just that Hopefully that opens more doors for them to be able to do this and uh, do it right. All right. Sorry, Chris. You missed out your, on your perfect question. You'll never get it again. Dang it. Keanu Weaves wrote in and said, hey, CDC. Recently became a Patreon member because the content is just too damn good and I didn't want to wait for it to go free. Thank you. Plus, you all deserve it. Thank you again. I listen to a fair number of gaming podcasts, Giant Bomb, Next Lander, 8-4 Play, etc. But Sacred Symbols has stats become my favorite. The structure and the insights are excellent, and even when I disagree, I enjoy the discussion. My question today is, Giant Bomb used to be my favorite for years, but has fallen off recently. One of the primary reasons being, very few folks there seem to be actually playing and covering games extensively. Another reason, there are constant jabs at gamers in general. And while we can be a scummy bunch, a lot of us are pretty normal and not always bickering online. We're probably the ones who listen to podcasts. While you do occasionally poke fun at gamers, the questions you get, the way you take them, and the way you point out good questions gives off a sense that you're respectful of the community. How did this come to be? What is a conscious decision? I see almost no other podcast do it this well. Thanks for the content. Keep up the interviews. I can't get enough. Thank you. Keanu for writing in. I wanted to bring this up because it's something that I actually came up in my conversation with Stacey Henley, who's the editor-in-chief of The Gamer, and people can watch that even on free feeds now on YouTube, but that was on Patreon, a Sacred Symbols Plus episode, and that was a really interesting conversation, and I asked her, as I recall, in part about what I see as an adversarial relationship that many outlets have with their audience or their potential audience. And that seems fucking crazy to me. Like, totally antithetical, a really razor's edge way to run a business. It works, I guess. Like, I think about some people in sports where, like, Skip and Shannon, like, you know, Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp, like those guys where they're really all about, you know, getting crazy and saying outlandish things, and it's kind of part of the package, like, you know, always busting balls and being homers for certain teams, and it's kind of part of the production. I think it's, I think it's kind of like a soap opera. And that's cool, if that's what you're into. But for me, I look at podcasting about games as something that is as serious as you want to take it. And I think that our show has a lot of levity and silliness in it, certainly. And that's part of the – I wouldn't want to do a straight-up show. I think that's boring and stupid. I've never done a podcast like that. It's got to be part levity and part fun. But we have to remember that our audience are gamers. And 
people make fun of that term and maybe it means nothing and I don't I don't know because it's like I'm not a music fan I'm not a music listener or I'm not a movie fa- watcher and it's like but gaming is newer and more interactive and more and deeper than than anything else in terms of entertainment and it attracts very specific kinds of people especially those that are deep enough into it to want to listen to a podcast like this i see no benefit to diminishing people wanting to play games and caring about them and enjoying them. Of course, we make fun of fanboys and corporate cheerleaders and all of that. But at the end of the day, we all come to games for our various reasons, and I think that should be respected. And the idea, like, it's that whole Lee Alexander thing from Gamergate. You know, what she wrote about, about you know, gamers are dead is one of the most – is one of the stupidest, most tone-deaf things that have ever been written in the games industry. I mean, she is responsible in a lot of ways, as I've described on other podcasts for Gamergate. And – it's like, why do you want to pick at the people who you – and it's no wonder that all of these people from Lee Alexander to Zoe Quinn to whoever, these people that kind of went down that road of the anti-gamer kind of thing, and they're, they're irrelevant. I mean, how long did you think you were going to stay relevant if you have no audience that you respect and care about and talk to and, and want to be a part of? See, we're just a voice for an audience, but we're part of the audience. I think that's more true for me than ever as a professional in the games industry because I don't get codes. We don't have access. I'm waiting for Horizon just like the rest of you. It's fun. It's exciting to be back in that position. I like it. It doesn't feel like there's as much pressure. I feel like I can be a more traditional gamer and an enthusiast. And so, if anything, I feel like we're more in line that way, and maybe that's why that sticks out because a lot of these people become jaded. They're caught. I mean, I was jaded at one time, too, so I get it. But they – I mean, I'm still jaded for many reasons. So I was really jaded when I was like kind of funny. But it's like you get every game for free. You get flown and dined and wined everywhere. Everyone wants to talk to you, and you don't have to really try, and you're up against these embargoes. And by the time everyone's kind of excited about a game, you've already played it for weeks. And I can see that wearing on a person, but we don't have that problem. So I appreciate that that shines through, and I think it's just important. Is it conscious? It's it's conscious in the sense that it's just good to be decent. I mean, I, I don't know. That is conscious, like I'm trying to be like, yeah, I love gamers. It's like, no, I am a gamer. Of course I love gamers. I've been a gamer my whole life. I've been a gamer for 30-plus years. What do you think about what what Keanu Weebs has to say, Dustin? Yeah, well, obviously, there's tons of, of jokes to be made. Like, I, for example, I had actually a pretty good tweet last week uh, where I said, it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong about Activision Blizzard and Bethesda games going exclusive. In the end, you're a gamer and thus a loser. Uh, which is funny because I like there was a few people that tweet got enough traction that people that have no idea about us or our show saw it and were mad about what I said. I didn't respond to all of them, but one or two, I was like, dude, look at my profile. Like, come on. Like, I'm making fun of myself here. But I think that's his, uh, his point. Our, our friend, uh, Keanu Weaves writes in is about this disdain from industry people about the very fans of the content. I know exactly uh, what he's talking about here. and um, Definitely. I don't know. It's like you're too cool for it or something. It's like, who are you? Yeah, it's like you're a part yeah. of this. Like, what are you, like, this is what it is. Like, And, yeah, no doubt, Colin, we, we make fun of the quote-unquote gamers that deserve it. But there's, like, it's such a broad term to just be like, Ugh, gamers, you know what I mean? Like, to, to seriously think that is is ridiculous. And is it a conscious effort from us? I mean, I don't know. We always just uh, 
I feel like it's a, a point for us to just treat the audience with the utmost respect. They're the reason that we're able to do that. You know what I, I know, mean? It's, 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 no, it's totally wild. That's why I'm saying Lee Alexander couldn't be any more irrelevant. That's her own fault. She's actually yeah. a good writer. But she decided to go down that path. Maybe she's relevant in another field, but she's certainly not relevant in this one. And I feel like I've always been a proud nerd. And I've always worn it on my sleeve. I, again, I don't think it's a conscious effort from me because I just want to treat everyone with respect. But imagine a situation where you're trying to create a business or do a product and you're like, I fucking hate you motherfuckers. You all are fucking clowns and trash. Now, here's what we're going to talk about today on the show. Like, why would anyone want to listen to that? Right. I think there's, like, abrasive shit going on, and that's fun, and it's, like, very, you know, like, Howard Stern used to really be that way with his audience, and I, I love that kind of stuff where it gets a little agitated, a little, a little flurry of punches and all that kind of stuff, very, very irreverent. But we got to remember, it's the same reason why we cut bait with our old merch people. It's because it, their customer service was not adequate. And we are a customer-focused company, which is why we are successful. Right. So I think, is it conscious from a production standpoint? No. It's, a, it's conscious from a human standpoint. But who the fuck would run a production company in which you hate and, and poke at your audience? It doesn't make any sense. And I don't really know of any successful businesses that really thread that needle. And, or, nor why would you want to? Right. I guess some people listen to yeah. political stuff that they don't like, but that's about it. Yeah. Uh, for us, I can just say from the standpoint, it's like our – adherence to the audience goes on so many levels, whether it's how we interact with them or what we offer them. I mean, it's like, it's no secret that we try to cram as much as we can into the $5 tier. And even then, you can pretty much get everything for a dollar, which I'm not trying to make this a marketing pitch for our, our Patreon, but it's it's this idea from the top down that it's like, we want to be able to provide as much value as we can. And even if you don't want the dollar, you practically can get how many hours a week from us, which obviously we make money in other means from the free feeds, whether it's from uh, ads on YouTube or sponsorships or whatever. But, yeah, we don't we don't take that for granted at all, and we would never want to be like, are you, are you fucking idiots? Uh, you guys are stupid, and, uh, you know, gamers are dead. Now, like you said, now it's... Uh, no, let's talk about Horizon. Just, you're just By the way, no Horizon is racist, and it and it takes Indian n- narratives and Indian styles and, and appropriates them. And by the way, don't you love video games? It's like, go fuck off. Yeah. We'll take it from here. We'll take it. Landon Keith wrote in and said, hey, C- or howdy, CDC. Firstly, thank you, Colin and Chris, for the years of laughter and entertainment, both as individuals and as a team. Not to inflate Dustin's ego too much or add fuel to his Joker moment. But he's been an incredible voice to have on board as well since he started. I know. I told you. I mean, I'm not dumb. Do you guys have any games you routinely go back to, and after a moment of post-nut clarity, you realize once again that you kind of hate the game? For me, it's Assassin's Creed. I go back to it every now and then because it sounds like fun on paper to me, but after playing it for even a small time frame, it's just lost its luster for me. Be well, my dudes. A couple games come to mind for me with this. Fallout 4 was one of those games I tried like four times. And I, I just, I wanted so badly to like it. In fact, it's fine. There's nothing really wrong with it. I just remember when it came out that September, October 2015 when we got it, it kind of funny. And I was into it. I played it for about 25 hours, but I was like, nah, it, just, it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel good anymore. It doesn't feel right. It's not 2008 anymore when Fallout 3, Fallout 3 came out. And then I went back to it a couple more times, and I'm like, I just, I'm not into it. But I try to keep an open mind with this because I do go back to games that I didn't like, and it does work. 
Dark Souls was another example. I went back several times. I just couldn't do it. But Bloodborne, I went back to a third time, and I finally got it and played it, right? Almost all the way through to the end, I didn't beat it. And recently, I've been really in the mood for a collectathon, like a 3D platformer. And I remembered that I never, I think it came out in 2017 or 2018, but I bought and played briefly but never got anywhere near beating Hat in Time, a Hat in Time. And I downloaded it on my PS5 in my bedroom. We have three PS5s, like one in the loft, one in the living room, one in the bedroom. And I try to keep different games on them, like different flavors of games. So I played, like, Doki Doki Literature Club in bed the entire time. But I played Far Cry 6 in the living room. And uh, so I was like, I need a new bedroom game. And I downloaded Hat in Time. And, and that was, it kind of is, like, fitting into this motif where I'm like, yeah, this game's good. I'm glad I went back to it. But I don't know that it becomes a routine. Assassin's Creed is actually one of those franchises that I did the exact opposite with, where I was like, I understand and accept that this will never happen for me. And I just stopped playing them. So are there any games to Landon's point that speak to you in this way, Dustin? It's not exactly how Landon uh, lays it out, but a game for me that I've realized is not as good as I once thought is Final Fantasy XV. And that's a game that I've actually went and platinumed the game. So I, I finished it and then went back. Was, was it a hate platinum? By the end it was. <laughs> I, had the Assassin, I have the Assassin's Creed 2 hate platinum, so I totally get it. No, yeah. so it wasn't – I I don't know. It's such a weird, conflicting feeling thinking back to Final Fantasy 15 in that I like the characters of that game. I like the story of the game a lot. In fact, I think it's a really dark and kind of sad Final Fantasy game, and I, I, I appreciate that aspect of it. But thinking back on it now, the combat and its empty open world and the 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 car that you drive around, I'm like, there's just a lot of stuff about this game in hindsight that I don't like. Uh, and so at one point I would have been like, yeah, Final Fantasy 15 is awesome. But now I'm just like, eh. I don't know. I don't know about that game. But there's plenty of games that I've played, uh, and looking back now, I'm like, I wouldn't enjoy it. Assassin's Creed's one of them that I I really wanted to play Assassin's Creed 3 when it came out because I loved I thought the fact that it took place in the American Revolution sounded so cool. So I played it. Oh, yeah. That's the last one I gave a chance to. I wanted to love it. Well, yeah. Well, and it's funny. I remember playing those and, like, blitzing through them and being like, this is pretty cool, but I'm really excited about this new one. And then that Assassin's Creed 3, I was like, eh, this isn't very good either. Uh, uh, Assassin's Creed, it just turns out that Assassin's Creed is not very good. Uh, at least those old games. I did buy a bunch of them in anticipation. Of, like, I, I, what was the one that took place? Syndicate. The one that took place in Britain. Oh, that right. one, I think, looked really, really cool. But I think that that was, like, the turning point where the games became good. Like, apparently after that is when the games actually started to become, like, actually good, mm. good games. I, I like the one um, with old Ezio. With, is that um, Don't even ask I, I can't remember which. It's, it's the third of the Ezio trilogy. I just like this idea of the... Oh, Brotherhood or whatever? whatever well, there's Brotherhood, and then is it Revelations? Something that happens to be Revelations? I don't know. I like the old Ezio one. That one's, that one's cool. Ezio... Yeah, Assassin's Creed 3, I was amped, I, I did a lot of coverage at IGN about the history of it, which was fun. I remember, actually, I did a video with Andrew Goldfarb uh, when it was announced, and they just showed a picture of Washington, I think, or something like that, and I and it got, like, millions of views on, on YouTube just because it was, like, this first something that had said, it, said about it. Go on. There's a really interesting DLC for that game that I've always been curious about. Oh, the Washington George Washington. As yeah, a yeah. king? Mm-hmm. 
and he gets the apple or whatever from the lore, and he has, like, you know, alien powers or whatever. That sounded kind of neat. Yeah, but, it did. I remember the, the art for that was really cool. To yeah. me, like him and, like, a, a throne. And, of course, he refused to be king. Asher Masi has the final inquiry. He says, hey, CDC, this question is mainly for Colin and Dustin. Isn't that great? Cause wow. Christmas on. With the increasing popularity of Japanese role-playing games in the West, I am very interested in jumping in to try these games out for myself. My only experience in the genre would be playing Kingdom Hearts, older Pokemon games on the Game Boy Advance, and some visual novels, though those aren't RPGs. No, they're not. The problem for me is that there are so many options to choose from, which causes me to feel intimidated and not make a selection. So I'm asking you, gentlemen, where should I start? Would it be Tales, Persona, East, Dragon Quest, Nino Kuni, Disgaea, or something else? Any recommendations would be helpful. Thank you, and keep up the great work. Now, I'll throw this over to you. You know just as much about the genre as I do, but I would say that right off the bat, Persona, no. East, no. Nino Kuni, no. Disgaea, definitely not. For me, I would say Tales would be maybe the most reasonable choice that you made here, but the traditionalist in me says, go play Dragon Quest, because it's the very foundation of everything. And while you might not like it, if you do like it, you'll know that you are a big fan of traditional turn-based role-playing games, and that will open up a whole world to you. But if you know that you don't like that, then that will close that world to you, and then you can worry about active battle systems, like in the Final Fantasy games, the later Final Fantasy games, action RPGs like East, and all the rest, even Tales to an extent. Nino Kuni, I think, is a little too Pokemon-like. You already have an experience with Pokemon, so I, I would just say no from that perspective. I like Nino Kuni a lot, but this guy is too complicated and also really overrated, in my opinion. I say no to Persona because mm. it's too much. I think I think the game that comes to mind for me over and over again, there's it's like Final Fantasy IV, Final Fantasy VI, Final Fantasy VII. I would just start with one of those, maybe. If you want to start with Dragon Quest, then start with something like Dragon Quest XI. Um, or if you want to play on DS, play Dragon Quest IX. That's a really good one, too. But, I don't know, you might have different yeah. answers here. What do you think? So, I mean, the thing about, though, for me with Colin, is Dragon Quest, is that you say that Persona's too much, but I you'll put just as many t- hours into Dragon Quest Eleven. no oh, doubt. Oh, yeah, that's true. I should I should say, I, I mean too much as far as too much going on in the game. Dragon mm-hmm. Quest is just really long, but it's very simple. You know? Yeah. And, and that's that's a detriment to for some people, but it's it's just, it's not simple, it's just straightforward. So... I feel like um, I feel like Persona Five. Honestly, I I know this is probably the most obvious answer to the audience, but uh, I think Persona Five is a great starting point in that it doesn't feel weighed down in some other RPGs do. Like there's not like uh, the the action feels very flowing, um, and it feels like you're going to be making progress. And very rarely, I think, if you play the game pretty if you pace yourself easily you you won't need to go and grind and do boring stuff to some it's to a new rpg player the thought of going and grinding might not be so so hot and i feel like man with persona 5 the the characters the story is so good it's constantly trip feeding you new mysteries that's going to compel you to keep playing and so i really do feel like persona 5 royal could be a, a fan fantastic place to start I also want to shout out Nino Kuni 2, which I know, Colin, you and I have different feelings about this game, but I think that Nino Kuni 2 was a really fantastic game, a game that I truly, really loved in a lot of ways. And it has a good, uh, I guess the, the combat could be described as more of a tale style. It's an action RPG. And that's one that I uh, I really enjoyed. You could pick up for super cheap. 
now. I'm trying to think, though. Dragon Quest, the, the only reason I would say no to Dragon Quest as a first RPG, while it is the fundamentals, is that I think that that game is is so bloated and long that I just... Why? Because it ends three times? <laughs> Dude, so I've never I've never beat that game. I played probably 30 or 40 hours of it. But Holly played through this game, and I swear she was playing it for like six months of just... And then she, I was like, so is it almost over now? And she's like, well, not really. But I can understand why you think that. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, right over again. Yeah, it's... Uh... It was a, it was a, that was a slog, but yeah. But just uh, just in in terms of the tradition and in terms of the mechanics, I guess Persona because it is very turn based and somewhat traditional as well wouldn't really be overwhelming. I just want to steer them away from the action RPGs, like mm. he's definitely not Tales. I would say no. I love Tales, but anyway, it's so it's interesting to me just because I almost consider action JRPGs and regular JRPGs like so different that they're not even. They're similar categories, but they're very different to me. It's a whole different Yeah, feel. that's true. That's true. I, I mean, that's why we're saying with our our role-playing game that we're making at Lilymo, which is a 16-bit style, Final Fantasy-style role-playing game, we're calling it a Japanese-style RPG. Because we're not Japanese, but right. it is a JRPG. Yeah. It is a JRPG, like, first and foremost, definitely. So it is interesting to kind of get into the genetics of that. All right. Dustin, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. Time to go. Do you have any closing comments before we leave? Just, uh... Everybody enjoy the weekend. Obviously, if you're listening to the show, there's a good chance you're picking up uh, Horizon Forbidden West. And so it'll just be nice. We'll all be experiencing this together. I know I'm going to try to do as little as possible. And just, uh, who knows? You know what? Maybe it sounds like a good weekend to order a pizza or Chinese food or something. Stay inside. Enjoy some video games. I totally agree. And, uh... Yeah, I'm excited to get this game going, excited to hang. Actually, it's tomorrow. It's, it's funny. Tomorrow on Friday, I usually record Sacred Symbols Plus, and uh, the person canceled on me, and I'm excited to do that episode. We don't really need it right now because we have so many episodes in the can, but uh, he canceled, and we'll do it later. I was like, oh, damn. Because now I just get to wake up tomorrow damn. and play Horizon, like right when I get out of bed, which is nice. So I'm excited about that. And, yeah, we'll have the Sacred Symbols Plus episode of that in the coming weeks. We'll, of course... Do Sacred Symbols Plus all about Elden Ring as well. I won't be on that one, but we'll do others will do that. And we'll continue to have those game-centric conversations. Dying Light 2 as well. Uh, maybe we'll do something with Sifu, depending on the combination of people that played that in the company as well. So keep an eye out. I know you guys want more game conversations. We will try to get those integrated into Sacred Symbols Plus, which I think is really rolling with the interviews, but we'll break them up a little bit more. I want to do a mailbag. I want to do a call-in. There's a lot I want to do. We just don't have many – there's not much room in the roster. We already do too many shows, if anything. So, yeah. Time to go. Dustin, I appreciate you. Chris, we miss you. We'll see you next week, of course, when he's back in New York. And we appreciate all of you out there for your love, kindness, and support. Patreon.com slash Media. We'll see you next time. Thank you again. Goodbye. See ya. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is proudly recorded in the USA. The show is conceived by, is written by, and is directed by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-hosts are Chris Raygun Maldonado and Dustin Furman. The show is produced by executive producer Dustin Furman. It's edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by my best friend, Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand's shows, including Sacred Symbols, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. 
The following names are at the producer level on Patreon, our highest tier, and we're grateful for your thoughtful and kind contributions to our independent endeavor. Thank you. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Tom Quinn, Stephen Innerfield, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Knock, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Jonas Young, Sorta Serious Gaming, Unofficial Controller Podcast, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, J.E. Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Christian R., Jad Rita, Benjamin Muma, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Allen Ruley, Tyler Watkins, Michael Buffle, Troilus True, Dan Root, Isabella Hope, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Holsey, Robbie Norman, Nuke Duca, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H. Trons, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galdra, Greek Thunder, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadeth, Poots, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Kinnams, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Cruxes, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanen, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan Arkitrej, Toby Ryland, Michael S., Dave Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Daryl Rodriguez, Damon W., Batudini, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Carlos Algrit, Dominic, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, John Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gonholliger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Brent Linquist, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. This is a headgum podcast. They made a book about a video game. Welcome to 8-Bit Book Club, the only book club that makes you dumber. I'm Brian Murphy, joined as always by my life-slash-comedy partner, Emily Axford. Stinky in the feed to be here. And Wendy O. Koopa himself, called Montana. <laughs> Goomba see you as always. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> this week, part three Goomba of... see you. That should be the 8-Bit Book Bud greeting. Yeah. You do namaste hands and say Goomba see you. If you see an 8-Bit Book Club bud... An 8-bit book bud on the street, and you, you're not sure if they're a bud, but you get that tingling. <laughs> if you feel the tingly in your janglies, <laughs> you know this person listens to a, a podcast about video game books. <laughs> then yeah, say Goomba, see you. So what are we reading this week? Doors to Doom? Is that the name uh, of this bad boy a, adventure doors book? Doors to Death, I think. Doors is to it? Doom. Doors to, <laughs> doors to we Death. We have died um, four times, I think. We've yeah. died about four times. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've we've come back to light, life each time um, because we are blessed by Bahamut. We are paladins of Bahamut, and we worship the light. Why isn't it Bahamut? I, I don't know which one it is. We, it, it's unwise to Bahamut. question his, his rule. Yes. Um, okay, so we're we're picking up where 
from where we made our, our deadly mistake last yes. time. I'm just going to start at the beginning of Chapter 44. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, Thank you, God. Now, if y'all the remember. The more times I hear these chapters, the better a person I am. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, do we want to talk about our penalty for this time if we die? Oh, yeah. What, do, what are we going to do if we die? Uh, I suggest that if we die, we have to donate an amount of money to charity, which either yeah. we can roll for or we oh, can... Oh, that's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Roll for uh, a buck for, you know, each number. Yeah, like $1 to $20 for charity every time we die. Great. Uh, I think that'll be the rule from now on. We can decide the charity maybe at the end of the show or uh, during, but right now I'm going to get right into it. Great. Uh, quick recap. We, we'll, we'll do a little good for all the death do... we have in our adventure book. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, instead of solving puzzles. Did you do puzzles, that chef guy who was uh, feeding everyone in Puerto Rico? Guy Fieri? <laughs> <laughs> that would be true. Guys, the I heard there was a flood. I'm bringing donkey sauce. <laughs> the, oh, the most inefficient use of food. You'd be like, everyone would be like, oh, great, you like made it. Nope, this is just for one person. Five of you were getting 10,000 calories today. It's called a Frito fuck you. <laughs> guy Fieri I makes shove, it. I put, I put... <laughs> I put the the little uh, nozzle that they put in goose mouths to make uh to make foie gras, and I pour Fritos into it, and you cry salt. And I only made enough for me. Uh, so of course Mario and Luigi had found their way to Subcon. They're trapped in uh, Doctor, which is the land of Mario Two. Yes, they're trapped in Doctor Funkenstein's uh, maze of doom. His Doors to Doom, which is a big, weird maze where he's trapped a bunch of uh, inhabitants of the much Mushroom Kingdom, if you uh, were having trouble remembering. Funkenstein is like a Goomba. He's like a very it's smart Funkenstein, Goomba. Funkenstein, you doofs. I know that you made a bit about some funky guy that I don't know what you're talking funky about. Funky Kong. Funky Kong, but it is Funkenstein. It's Dr. Funkenstein. He's a very smart Goomba, and he's trapped our, our fearless plumbers. Along with all the heroes and villains from the Mushroom Kingdom, because he wants to make turtle and mushroom soup. And he and doesn't with want plumber sauce. He wants to plumber smell sauce. Luigi's feet. Uh, that is not presented in the book, but it is. <laughs> well, we can read into it. We can read into the theme. Yeah, between the lines and toes, you can. it's very easy to tell. It's sort of like the Bible has a lot of people who mm-hmm. um, sort of bring the scripture to life by analyzing it. Yeah. That's sort of what we are It's like how you, you don't know that Jesus is horny for doms in the Bible, but like it's understood. <laughs> um, all right, go ahead. All right, here we go. Chapter 44. As they plunge through the air, Luigi pulls the parasol from his pocket. He presses the button, and the umbrella unfolds with a snap. The two plumbers float softly to the ground. They are standing in a deep valley. One of the stupidest sentences I've ever heard. Float softly to the the ground. The the two plumbers float softly to the ground. I think it's a beautiful sentence. I think it's one of the best (laughs) sentences in the English language. It they makes are, me want to, like, not be a writer. <laughs> I have eaten the plums that were in the fridge. Two plumbers float softly to the ground. <laughs> now I kind of like it. They are standing in a deep valley. The hills are too steep to climb. We're trapped, groans Luigi. Not so, responds Mario <laughs> cheerfully. Thank you for listening to my podcast. <laughs> he pulls up a tuft of grass. Out of the ground pops a bottle filled with red liquid. Oh, yeah. He holds wine, the bottle. Wine. <laughs> It's that good red sauce. <laughs> it's that it's, a, it's an 89 grape. Chianti. The two <laughs> brothers share a picnic. Mm, it's that saucy grape that gets me fucked, and I can't <laughs> wait for more. He holds the bottle over his head triumphantly. Magic potion! Let's get moving, says Luigi. 
that Bezos might return at any moment. Jeff Bezos <laughs> might return. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> He's going to make us work in his warehouse. <laughs> Mario throws the bottle against the side of the hill. It disappears in a twinkle and is replaced by a shiny red door. He turns the handle, giving the door a hard I wish hard that happened shut. every time I left a room, that I disappeared in a twinkle and was replaced by a shiny red door. I wish every time I spilled red wine, a shiny red door appeared. <laughs> Ooh, and I would enter the wine zone. Yeah. Oh, man. Can you are a big-time spiller, Caldwell. I, this is You're true. You're a spilly boy. I am, too. Yeah. Emily does spill More a lot, More intersection too. between the world, me and Caldwell. And, and Lena are kindred. Yeah, we're kindred. We occupy the same role in our relationship yeah, to other people. The same spectrum on yes. the relationship graph. <laughs> and it's just sloppy dumbos. <laughs> Emily once said to me, she said, um, you know how when you're drinking coffee and you always spill on yourself? Like every time you have a coffee, you spill on yourself a little? And I said, no. I don't know what you're talking about. Honestly, I, I relate to that. We should that just get occasionally. I to what I said. Occasionally you spill a little bit. <laughs> if we ever run out of books to read, we should just have like a roast where you just invite Suzanne to, like, list all the dumb things I do. Because <laughs> I do spill water pretty much every night. I've spilled water on my Nintendo Switch multiple times. Ooh. And that's rough. That's an expensive hobby to have. Called yeah. That. Spilling. <laughs> I just like to live on the edge. Spilling is basically a dice roll for your electronics. Here's my here's my tip for spelling. Okay. Here's a spell hack. You could either learn how to not spell, or you could get a shag rug because then every time you spill, you just kind of mush it into the shag rug. <laughs> That's my spill hack. Just mush it in the rug. That's what, if you shit in the rug, just mush it in. All right, I'm gonna try and finish this page. Uh, he turns the handle, giving the door a hard shove. Nice. Hard shove. Oh my god! It, does, it oh, doesn't budge. <laughs> Give me a hand, Luigi. He hard, says. Hard shove. Luigi applauds. I know that you're doing like a funny sex thing, but uh, Luigi just did a fucking A plus zinger, and I want to read it again. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. Give me a hand, Luigi. Oh. Luigi applauds. I remember oh. this one. I remember this yeah, one. Yeah, we've heard this goof before. That. Yes, we have read these, like, three full pages that you just read. This is great it's podcast material. It's been you know a week. To the people like, who are listening to this, you, you know somebody just got into it, and you know they're binging. Oh, they're burning. They're, yeah. They're, they're listening to all three that's Mario Adventure books. That's Right. So, yeah. I'm hey, very well, I mean, that's like you. saying, like, oh, I didn't like Groundhog's Day because he does things more than once in the film. Well, you know, if the entire and plot yes, I am of our podcast was repeating things, then perhaps that analogy would be apt. Right. Yes. Also, if this child's adventure book was a work of art like Groundhog Day, I, which is a, actually, I haven't seen it in a while. That's the argument that's I'm making. Yeah. That is the <laughs> argument I'm making. It does make me feel guilty sometimes when we, like, reread a chapter of this of this adventure book for like the fourth time and I'm like I haven't even read anything by Tolstoy <laughs> and yet I could probably recite uh, page 44 of you can feel your bones grinding in the <laughs> sand and the sand falling through the hourglass yeah I read like 60 books last year and 55 of them were awful video games <laughs> I am a full time idiot because of this podcast it probably makes me a worse writer yeah Expose myself. Uh, you heard it here. We are full-time kooks. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go, go. Uh, Mario gave his brother a glare that could stop a triclot dead in its tracks. <laughs> it's locked, says Luigi, with a lace lock. It looks like shoelaces on the outside, but you can't untie it. To unlock the door, you have to figure out what's on the other side, what the other side looks like. I'm great at these puzzles. Excuse me, but you can't even tie your shoes, replies Luigi. Let me handle this. 
Below the lock are two large buttons. Each has a shoelace pattern drawn on it. Luigi inspects the door. Which button matches the other side of the laces? He bites his lip, then quickly presses a button. Hey, y'all, I'm looking at this lock on the other side. It's gears. It's not shoelaces. But if you page through the book, there is another puzzle, puzzle on a completely different page that does have shoelaces. I think this book is misprinted. It, oh. it wouldn't surprise me at all. <gasps> this is... I remember because this one we were like, what the fuck is this puzzle? And then we're yeah. like, I guess we'll just fucking roll. And this mm-hmm. time we're st- like, it's last a, time we were a little shouting. drunk. Or I was a little drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, I, I don't know what's going on here. But now... Stone Cold Sober, mm-hmm. I'm it's, like, what is going like, on is here? Is this the one that's save versus save? Um, no, this is, uh, if you think Luigi pressed button A, turn to page 21. Uh, okay, yeah, so we B, just rolled for this one. So we don't want to go to yeah. one. We know we don't want to go to I'm, page 118. That's I, the I, death page. I have to describe this uh, to the people. Study the pictures below. The top drawing shows the lace lock from the front. The bottom, the buttons show... The buttons below show what the laces might look like from the back. Choose the one you think is correct. On the other side is a single padlock with a bunch of gears and letters on it. It is the wrong puzzle. Oh, my fucking God, this fucking book. I found the right puzzle, though. Is there no – does no one try them through once before they go to print? I don't think so. I don't think that Reggie uh, CME had to take a gander at this book. (laughs) All right, well, there's some very beautiful shy guys wearing uh, feathery robes oh, on this page, which I, I need do to see like. That picture. Yeah, they're, they're like little fairies. Oh, well, hi. did you did you retain the pages when you took the book from me? Yeah, uh, I think okay, I did. she looks like she's got a fingy in that. Oh, nice. nice. Good. Always Sometimes take, you gotta leave a fingy. Always keep a fingy. <laughs> always keep a fingy in the book. If you want to remember where you're going, that's a good thingy in there. That's oh. a good thing. That's a good thing. If someone's like, mm-hmm. if if someone's trying to talk to you and you're like, I need to talk about this later, you're mm-hmm. like, I'm sorry. Can we stick a fingy in this? <laughs> <laughs> Can we just stick a fingy in this and circle back? <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm just gonna drop a quick fingy in and here then and put a pin in it. But yeah. Stick a fingy in it. <laughs> we just, yeah. Stick a quick thingy. I want to remember this thingy, so let's stick, stick a, a quick thingy. thingy. So do we want to do we want to stick thingy, a thingy, thingy, thingy in there and solve the actual puzzle? Let's and then stick thingy a thingy back. Thingy and then. All right, I'm looking the at the actual puzzle, and it looks like some real bu- bullshit as well. Okay, so, so should we just roll? For I it? think we should just roll for All right, it. One through ten is A. Oh shit! So we never did this B. one. No, we never. This is oh, this is a revelation. But I think we did do this one, and then we just died. All right. Well, this is the thing. Is it eighteen? That's B. All right, B. Let's go. Emily, uh, look at option B and see if it seems correct. Like, okay. Do you, yeah, does it vaguely seem correct? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't even know what this puzzle is asking me to do. B it is. <laughs> All right, and if we lose. Puzzle master, Emily Axford, everyone. All right, here we go. <laughs> We're going to page 68. You got it. All right. Oh, no. Wait, we got killed last time. Remember? We what? yelled 68. We were pumped. It was almost oh, 69. Yeah. Option right. A. Option, right. a. option a. a. Are we avoiding that? Or is yeah. that we're, we're avoiding we're, 68. I, I feel yeah. like we successfully pivoted. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't move the piece yet. Didn't move the piece yet. All right. Yeah. Great. We're going to page 21. If the thingy's still in there, the thingy, then we can... Then let's we put a thingy in it. Yeah. We're going back. Although, here's the... Pro- so, we have to donate to charity even if we win, because the problem with donating to charity every time we die is it makes us seem like dickheads for trying to win. So, you let's just what? say no, no, no matter what, here's we will what donate. We'll do yeah. is we will donate, but I think that at the end of this, we roll, like, four times, because we've died, we've died four, oh, four times. Oh, already. retroactive, so roll yeah. four times. This is Bahama has come to collect his due ah, and donate it. it to, like... You know what we could do is we could also have people suggest what we donate to. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's, that's fun. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll easy. wait. Oh, you know what we could do? Uh, we could do Child's Play maybe because like Christmas is coming up and oh, we'll I love Child's thing. Play. Child's Play is great. Let's do let's do Child's Play. Wonderful. All right, great. It's decided. Um, all right, we are on page 21 now. Here we go. The door swings open, and the landscape of Subcon stretches before them. Still in Subcon. As Mario and Luigi jump through the door, it disappears behind them in a flash, singeing the back of Mario's red overalls. Oh, Ooh, oh yeah. I hated when that happened. <laughs> oh, it sounded like he kind of liked it. Rumbles Mario, clearly lying. <laughs> the Mario brothers stand beside a waterfall and a large pond. Barrels bob on the water's surface. Oh, no. Barrels bobbing is clearly uh, a puzzle indicator. Oh, God. As they have done many times before, they start to cross over the pond, leaping from barrel to barrel. Halfway across, a door opens in the middle of the waterfall. Dr. Von Funkenstein. Oh, he's always there. Dude, I would love to live in a cave under a waterfall, though. Mm -hmm. Is he so evil? Um, That's a great call. He wants He's a cannibal. He wants to make mushroom and turtle soup. No, he, he wants mushroom. to start a fast food oh. business out of people. Yeah. You are right. He yeah. is a mushroom man, and he's eating other mushrooms. That's reprehensible. Yeah. This would be like if I – he's pulling a fucking Sweeney Todd. He's like putting people in the sausage. Also, as someone who repeatedly tries to be a vegan, yeah. like once every three weeks, um, I don't Every moon cycle. <laughs> I don't think we should be eating animals in general sure. or fungus. Sure, sure, sure. Emily, could you perhaps sing a Sweeney Todd song but about Fungenstein? <laughs> I don't know any Sweeney Todd. Isn't that one song oh. that's like, Behold the tale of Sweeney Todd. Yeah. <laughs> Behold the tale I of Fungenstein. That's all we got. That's all we got. Okay, we're going to Behold the tale of Fungenstein. He's a goomba, is really mean. There, there you go. go. Perfect. Yeah. How about this question before we move on? Mm -hmm. If goombas were real, yeah. Did you eat one? Did you chow down? Ooh, that is a really good question because I bet they'd make like you know how people use portobello mushroom uh, mushrooms like instead of like a burger bun. Yeah, oh, no. I would use it as the bun. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I see what you're saying. Now. So I'm saying like I could do that. Yeah, but it's like oh, I wish that all buns looked like goombas. Or they're like, like really pyramidal. They're like kind of triangular. And yeah, shape. make like a nice like goomba quiche. Ooh, oh, you know what else would be good? So you take the goomba, hollow that fucker out. Make like a bread bowl out of it. Like oh, oh man! So that thing was chilly. Now we're cooking with goombas. Some sort of stroke. <laughs> <laughs> I want like to freaking grind it up paratrooper in there. You guys know in, in Mario Odyssey two, uh, Mario eats the goombas. Oh. He instead of using his cap to like capture people and have fun in their bodies, uh, he just eats them and gains their abilities. Oh wow! Like Siler from Heroes. Whoa! Um, like the girl from I Zombie. The Mario Brothers stand beside a waterfall in a large pond, barrels bob on the water's surface. As they have done many times before, they start to cross over the pond, leaping from barrel to barrel. Halfway across, a door opens up in the middle of the waterfall. Dr. Von Fungenstein po pokes his bald head through the door in the flowing water. Fucking great apartment. You're not so human after all, he shouts at the plumber. Oh, plumbers. yes, he is horny. Absolutely. <laughs> Can I roll for how horny he is? Please, if his you would. horniness level? 16. 16. Pretty uh, horny. Pretty horny. People, like, bad guys are often really horny. Yeah. Because they're putting factor. their work before. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that he has a 16 horniness. Okay. A horde of pink Bezos. A horde oh. of pink Jeff yeah, Bezos rises over. He fucked them all. He, fucked, a, them all. he fucked all those pink Jeff Bezos. <laughs> he fucked them pink. They weren't pink before. <laughs> and begins a slow swoop toward the Mario Bros. At the same time, all the barrels except the one they are standing on begin to sink into the water. The barrels bob up and down in a rhythmic pattern. 
Should we stay here or try to make it to the shore? asked Mario. That depends on the way the barrels bob up and down, replies Luigi. If we can make it by jumping on them, we should run. Otherwise, we should stay put and die. Oh, boy. Whoa. Or duck. We should kill ourselves. Fatalistic. Uh, he says, otherwise, we should stay put and duck. Solve the puzzle on the next page to see what happens next. All, All right. right. General puzzle, puzzle rules should just be, you should be able to eyeball it and yep. figure out. Uh, if you think Mario and Luigi should run, turn to page 39. If you think Mario and Luigi should duck, turn to page 88. Hmm. Oh, fuck. Is there a way I can jump through it? Uh, the barrels move up and down one space every second, except that they stay on the surface for two seconds. Fuck this. Uh, I think that they should duck. Whoa, really? I I think that you just said that with a lot of confidence, and yeah. I'm willing to join you where whatever path Okay, you what down. pages do we go to? We know 68 is a bad page, and we know 1 8. We've died so many times, we know the bad pages. Yeah, 39 or 88 are our two oh, options. Wild card pages. Mm-hmm. Wild do you want to roll pages, for it? Y'all. Yeah, we could roll for it. No, okay. but you no, 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 duck. We should duck. You know what? Let's do, follow that instinct. I appreciate yeah. your constant, like your confidence. I have the confidence of a very short plumber who can jump very high. <laughs> Why are you ducking? Why not also, jump like, on the why barrels? Would a, why, would a plumber, why would a plumber ever need to jump? It does seem like the fun option that would get you killed. Mm-hmm. But you got to remember, called all these that were dead. <laughs> I see that familiar like, face. Keep a stinky All right, how did we die? How, do, how did we die? <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm, you know what? Uh, I'm keeping a, a clingy thingy in that page, but uh, I'm going to read the death, uh, and then we'll roll for how much we have to oh, okay. stick a thingy, Stick a thingy in that, uh, right. in that, in that uh, page where we're still alive. I don't think we can make it, shouts Mario over the hum of the Bezo bombers. Oh. So duck already, uh, screams Luigi. They duck as the Bezos swoop past. As they stand up again, a red streak zooms over the barrel and into the water. Trouser! Mario jumps to avoid the deadly fish from Subcon's waterfalls. When he comes down, he lands hard on his end of the barrel and sends Luigi flying into the water. His brother disappears with a splash. After a moment, there is a bright red spot in the water. What? Uh, now you're making but oh Mario has a little God. time. But Mario has a little time. He to... would never find his body until weeks later, when the police drained the swamp. <laughs> there lied Luigi, bloated and awful. <laughs> but Mario has little time to regret his actions. Another trouter flashes out of the waterfall, hitting him between the eyes. What a way to go! He gasps, filled by a fish. That's the think... last thing he says before he dies. I think that's kind his of beautiful. <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. we'll roll at the end. That's okay. five deaths. That's a big five. fish. I, I took out my notepad on my phone. We're going to do all the rest of the deaths. All right, we stuck our finger in that other page. Should I write down how many deaths we're at? I have it. Oh, yeah, you got the death we count? That's we got the, the new. death count. It's I got a fucking death clock. All right, oh, here we go. Five. Guys, you got like, to jump on the berries, you know? The you got to jump on the barrels. Mario, Mario's a jumper. I shouldn't have gone against his programming. But that is the type of trick McKay mm-hmm. would pull on us. Like, of course... Of course the kids would want to jump on the barrel. This That's fun. Like, that is, that'll get you killed. This is like a fucking LucasArts game where they're like, oh, you had to know that he switched the puzzles. That was like, that was hinted at in the preface, and you needed to read the preface. Mm. Did you not read the preface? To be fair, we are not doing the puzzle, so we deserve all of the deaths that we're getting. That's right true. Now. But it, through our deaths. even if we did the puzzles, they're on the wrong freaking page. Hey, That's guess what? on McKay. doesn't matter, because we, through the light of Bahamut, have been born anew, and all of our deaths shall go to save... Uh, a little kid. That's true. Yeah. Uh, 
Let's make like Bezos and buzz off, says Mario, as the first barrel surfaces. Let's make like Bezos and fuck off? Yeah. Let's, wow. let's make like be Let's make like Bezos and sell books on the internet. <laughs> as the first barrel surfaces, he leaps onto it. Before it can sink, he is airborne again and headed for the shore. Luigi waits for the barrels to realign themselves, then takes them in the same pattern. The Bezos were passed. Before the brightly clad buzzers can regroup, Mario and Luigi disappear over a hill. The speedy plumbers... No, that's... No, that's Sonic. They're the kind speedy of... plumbers... <laughs> they're relatively speedy. Yeah, that's Speedy true. Plumbers, so plumbers, chime in! Let's juice! What's <laughs> the juice! <laughs> the speedy plumbers leap a large crevasse, then come to a halt at the base of a large jar. What a wonderfully erotic word. Yeah, crevasse. Yeah, because it's got ass right in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Built right in. It is one of the most erotic words in our language. What are other contenders? In our puny little language. Yeah, in our silly. Porygon. <laughs> what was that? The Pokemon. <laughs> Top ten sexiest Top words. Top ten erotic words. How did we work? Cravat. They're all, they're all Pokemon. No, we worked for the internet for half a decade. How did none of us ever write Top ten sexiest words? It's a very funny <laughs> list. <laughs> all right, here we go. Um, they look up at the intricate pattern painted on the side of the pottery. I think we should jump inside and check it out. That's a very bad idea. It's we have so probably weird. find a Fanto in there, Luigi reminds Mario. Those Why red and white devils chase you forever. They, uh, should be, they should be restoring this. They just encountered ancient pottery, mm-hmm. and they're going to jump into it. They should be cataloging it. a big-ass yes. pot. Yeah, that's an urn, if anything. This should, just be, this should just be them restoring it. Y'all, that's an oil drum. That ain't no pot. <laughs> The sound of Jeff Bezos' rises up the hillside. <laughs> the jar is the best place to hide until those bee brains buzz off, says Mario. <laughs> Here we go. I say we hide behind it until the coast is clear, suggests Luigi. Phantos, give me the creeps. Luigi stares intently at the painting on the jar. It depicts a group of subconian creatures. Oh, God. Puzzle alert. Uh, the drawing is divided in half. Each side appears to be the mirror image of the other. It's a subcon game jar, exclaims Luigi. Oh, I love those from Mario 2. I love those subcon game jars from Mario 2. My favorite part from the game. Yeah. Some of my best childhood memories. <laughs> I've always wanted to find one. We have to find the differences between the two sides. Oh, this should be an easy one. Great, says Mario. Didn't we find a warp zone or something, right? No, replies Luigi. It's just for fun. They both sound like bad guys. Both the voices that you do for them sound like bad guys. Well, n- no, that's just that's just prejudice on your part. Okay, <laughs> I stand, I step, I step down. <laughs> I love your voices. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, uh, put you in your head. My voices are good and definitely They're not stereotypes at all. Uh, you want to play a game now? Says his brother in disbelief. <laughs> sure, says Luigi. I never pass up a good game. Just give me a couple minutes. <laughs> Uh, Luigi pulls out his Nintendo Switch and fires up Splatoon 2. Oh, man. This book is way ahead of his time. Yeah. Luigi starts playing Bloodborne. <laughs> On a PS4. Yeah. Weird. Luigi fires up Dark Souls and goes to fight Father Geisel. No, it's something. I can't remember the name. Um, solve the game jar puzzle on the next page for fun. Then decide what Mario and Luigi should do next. What? Fuck off. What? 
He gave Fuck us a puzzle off. that has literally no consequence on the outcome. Let's just figure Bill out Bill McKay is fucking sitting in some fucking mansion in Beverly Hills. <laughs> all that Nintendo Adventure Book money. Bathing in a fucking bathtub of Nintendo Adventure Book money. the advance he got. I can't even. <laughs> he's fucking boy. Stinky, spoiled kids are going to Harvard off their daddy's good reputation. Yeah, John Grisham was like, please, can you ghostwrite my books? Oh, you're so good at writing. He's like, fuck you, I got that Nintendo money. It's so funny, if in the middle of a John Grisham novel, there was just a puzzle. I'm a- <laughs> in the middle of the... But it was just solve the puzzle for fun. Detective Harry Hole solved the puzzle for fun, and that was how he found the snowman. <laughs> After a few minutes, Luigi turns to Mario and smiles. I got it, he says proudly. Now, where were we? We were trying to decide whether to hide in the jar or behind it, says Mario, urgently pointing to a swarm of bezos rising above the hill. Uh, the Super Mario Brothers get 15 points. Great. Oh, sweet. I think we might have gotten points before, and I did uh, not track them. I did. Um, are you kidding me? Have you met me? Do I ever <laughs> let a fucking point go untracked? The answer you, is yes, do I, I do, often. We have 80 points. Emily has never let a point slip between her greasy fingies. <laughs> My greedy, greedy for <laughs> greedy, point fingies. Greedy, greasy fingies. <laughs> oh, nothing makes me cream harder than sing. All right, are we going in this pot, or are we hiding behind the pot? Hmm. Here's a here's is it okay. a pot or is it a jar? Because so the author's jar, going the back jar. and forth. Here's the thing. I feel like there's got to be balance in fun stuff killing you and fun stuff not killing you. Mm-hmm. Jumping in the pot is clearly the fun choice. Yeah. However, in the last puzzle, jumping on the barrels was the fun choice, and that was the one that kept you alive. I feel like they'd keep it 50-50 on fun stuff killing you. You think I, you should hide? However, I will say that Luigi wanting to play a game while Killer Bezos are trying to kill him shows that he has bad judgment, which makes me trust Mario more. Well, do we do, um, do we follow the brazen path of courage, or do we uh, hide behind the, the pot, like oh. the cowards that we are? Okay. Oh, we're cowards. We hide. Okay. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> 63. Uh, I, I, think I'm, I have the tenets of being a paladin on my phone, so um, one of them is courage. So <laughs> I feel I have Wait, to cast my vote for... Yeah, I have it right here. What do you, is it your, your like wallpaper? And no, I just I just have a picture of it in the um, player's handbook because I felt it was very inspiring. Because um, Murph got hey. weepy when he read it the other day. Yeah, <laughs> courage, um, compassion, honor, duty. You know, he, he, he read me a passage and his tear and his eyes welled with tears. <laughs> this is a those are literally story. beautiful. I think it's, it's like the Boy Scout motto. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> They really are just very religious boy scouts. Boys who don't. religious boy scouts. Boy scouts who love God more than regular boy scouts, which is pretty much a lot. Young boys who don't find boy scouts find paladins. (laughs) Yeah. At the summer camp I went to, uh, there was like a rank system in place. uh, If you were like a good boy at camp. (laughs) No. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, there was a good boy ranking at camp. No, really? the, What's the goodest boy that, that you could be? So Paladin. Creepiest. What? Yeah, oh, that's really? incredible. It used to be called Little Chief, but they changed it because oh, of yeah. oh. they're oh. fucking PC now. Uh, but yes, it's called Paladin now, which I think is way cooler. That is super cool. That is way cooler. And guess what? Yeah, boy, was a paladin. Nice. Wait, what were the bad what boys called? Boy. Uh, the bad boys were sent home. <laughs> 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 they were given a rank. You're either a paladin, a regular kid, or you fucking go home, man. 
I'm trying to remember all the ranks. It was stuff like, um, you know, traveler, uh, friend of bear, things like that. Well, right? I'd rather be, no offense, but I'd rather be a friend of bear and a traveler than a paladin. Well, you're a friend of bear if you're nice to bears but mean to people, mm-hmm. and you're a paladin if you're nice to people. Yeah. I'm on the side of bears, mostly. Fair enough. You're mostly. a skin changer. We know this about you. <laughs> we talked about this on the show. What the fuck are we talking about? Are we deciding to go in the pot or yeah. not? Okay. All okay. right. I'm, We're pro- going I'm team in pot. You're team not pot. No. I'm team pot. We're no. going in the pot. We're hiding in the pot. Uh, no, we're hiding behind the jar. Right? Oh, okay. We're hiding behind the jar because I already turned that page, and it was the right choice. Oh, cool. Okay. Oh, I, thank God. I think my fun and no fun uh, theory was correct. Yeah. It could be a long walk to a game over. It's yeah. True. Sometimes you never know. We could be on a Twilight Sojourn. Go ahead. Um, you always were a fraidy cat when it came to Phantos, says Mario. I just hate floating heads, explains Luigi. I always think they're looking for a body, and they have their eyes on mine. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. <laughs> the two blummers. What do you think about my new Luigi voice? I think it's perfect. It's pretty good. Everything you do is perfect. Thank you. Thank you for not criticizing me. <laughs> Thank you for the safe space. The two plumbers move quickly to the other side of the jar and hide from the oncoming swarm of Jeff Bezos. <laughs> The Jeff Bezos is dropping. Let's all do it at the same time. Right? We do three, okay. two, one, and then we do yep. three, two, one, then a high-pitched, we're buying whole foods. Okay. <laughs> this is what a Jeff Bezos yep. sounds like. Three, two, one. We're, we're buying whole foods. Wait, I fucked up. We have to do it again. Okay. All right, all right. Emily, get it together, girl. Her face is red. She's crying again. Emily, compose yourself. Compose yourself so we can be the Bezos bunch. The Bezos What's your favorite band? Why is the Bezos bunch? Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, wait. It should be more complicated now. Okay, so it's we're buying Whole Foods. Baby. Gonna ship you a package. Gonna Uh ship you my love. Okay? Okay. All right. Ready? Yep. Three, two, one. We're following Holford. Gonna ship you a package. Gonna ship you my love. Perfect. God only knows. The Bezos boys. The Bezos boys. What is going on? All right. The two plumbers move quickly to the other side of the jar and hide from the oncoming swarm. Uh, the swarm zooms past their hiding place and keeps going. We've <laughs> got great deals <laughs> on towels. Uh, Luigi looks up and points to a door in the jar's side. It's latched with a double bolt lock, says Luigi, pointing Is to the device below the door handle. The two bolts face each other where their threads interlocked. The instructions say to pick a destination and turn the bolts. Another door! Just what we need! Exclaims Mario, disgusted. Oh my god, shut the fuck this dude up. Dude hates you doors. Live what do you gotta get doors, Mario? World. Every door you encounter is leads you into another fantastical world. He likes pipes, not doors. No, he likes you doors. Pick one. I've played the no, game. No, you know what? I'm Caldo's absolutely right. You no, gotta pick one. The dude fucking loves. No. Mario loves doors. And Mario loves you gotta doors. Pick one. Mario loves doors. How many doors? Whose side are you on him? If he I could go, you're either with the, you're either with the pipe or you're against the pipe. He goes through doors to get into castles. If I could squeeze my beautiful ass into a pipe to get to work every day instead of going through fucking doors, oh I mean, my god. I, pipes I, are I agree always, with that personally. Pipes are almost always a good thing. The doors in Mario are very confusing. Yeah, that's true. 
Sometimes there's doors. He loves doors. Shut the fuck up. You gotta like, you gotta, you're you're with the pipes or you're against the pipes. Fair enough. He loves doors and pipes. Let's open the door and see where it goes. Then we can, then we can decide what's next. I already have this thing figured out. Mario died that day. What if it's not a game over, but just Luigi dies, but we still continue on? Mario <laughs> opened the door too hard and cracked Luigi in the skull. <laughs> oh, it's the door to darkness. Is that answer my feet? <laughs> Fucking finally. Go ahead. The bolts are connected to a pointer. The arrow now points to a sign that says, This way to the boss Buffonidae. Oh. oh, dear. If the two bolts move farther apart when they are turned, the pointer will move right towards the sign that reads, This way to the Simeon Morass. Oh, boy. Oh, shit. If they move closer together, the pointer will move toward a third sign. It reads, This way to the Grand Egress. Above the lock is a set of instructions. The last line says, Twist once to open. This looks more complicated than this stink. This okay. looks more complicated than the sprinkler system you designed for the king's hedge maze, uh, complains Mario. Actually, it's simple, says Luigi. We just grab both ends of the bolts and twist once, like the sign says. But which way do we twist? Okay, Simeon Morass. Simeon means...